everyone remain calm. Back for more, huh? Oh, yeah. Ooh, ah, that's how it always starts. But then later there's running and then screaming. Somebody talk to me! What is happening? Welcome to Jurassic World. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Jurassic Park Podcast. How long is it going to take for that to spread around the globe? This was all John Hammond's dream. Hold on to your butt. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 313th episode of the Jurassic Park Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Jost, and we're here to discuss all things Jurassic Park. In this episode, we debut the final analysis episode of the Lost World Book Club, featuring Ben, the host, chatting with Vector That Fox, you know Joe Breeze, the artist behind the Folio Society editions of Jurassic Park and the Lost World, Plus, Tom Jurassic also joins in on the conversation. You know, I am, uh, I, I think this is going to be a great, uh, great segment, but uh, I am just so sad that the, the book club is coming to a close here. You know, I, I've had a great time revisiting The Lost World and going through this book and, and hearing everybody's thoughts and, and certainly hearing Ben and, and all the guests and, and, you know, the listeners and everybody over these past few uh, book club episodes. It's sad to see it go, but, uh, you know, I, I certainly do not think it's the end of the line for the the book club segment. There will definitely be more on the horizon, so please stay tuned for more as soon as we can get around to them. But, uh, you know, if you ever have any thoughts on either Jurassic Park or The Lost World or, you know, any, any number of books out there in the franchise, you can send in your audio recordings to JurassicParkBookClub at gmail.com. But again, I think Ben, Joe, and Tom have a fantastic episode for you all lined up here. So uh, before we get into it, I'd like to take care of some quick business. So real quick, I just wanted to give a shout out to my other show, my other podcast, Grim Grinning Hosts. Uh, It was like last week or so we released an episode talking about uh, thematic integrity in theme parks. And we talked, uh, I think there was a little bit of a conversation about the Jurassic World, uh, Jurassic Park sections at Universal, talking about, uh, you know, canonical elements, how things hold up. Um, But we were also talking about other franchises as well, Star Wars and Nintendo and Marvel, stuff like that, and how all these things compare. Do we need canonical theme park lands? I think that was really the question that we were trying to answer. So go check out that. I'll uh, I'll place a link to that in our show notes. I was also on um, another podcast. Uh, I'm a frequent contributor to the Forcecast. Usually do the live segments, but this past week couldn't do the live. So instead, we did a, uh, a main Forcecast episode where we talked about our top five lightsaber fights. So uh, that was pretty fun. I had a great time putting together that list because I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I know there's not always a ton of crossover between these two franchises, but... I love talking about Star Wars, so please check out the uh, the episode. I'm going to put that in the show notes as well, so you can take a listen to me talking about Star Wars. I also had the chance to record with Stephen Ray Morris. I do not think the episode is posted yet, but uh, there should be, I, I don't know, just keep an eye out for it. It should be up there at some point, maybe this week, I think. I don't know, but uh, just keep an eye out on, on C. Jurassic Rights uh, podcast feed. 
great podcast as well, talking about all things Jurassic. So please check out Stephen Ray Morris' podcast, and I'll be on an upcoming episode. So check it out. And also, I know I teased a bonus episode coming. Uh, I delayed it a little bit because I'm still waiting for some stuff back from Funko. So uh, I will have that out for you at some point. Hopefully, fingers crossed, this week. I want to get it out there. I want to start talking about it some more. So uh, just keep an eye out on the feeds for maybe a bonus episode this week. Now over to YouTube. Last week, I uploaded a merch hunt. I think I filmed it a few weeks ago. My hair was still long. Um, but I, I was able to track down some really cool uh, kids attire. There was like shirts and stuff like that, but also shoes that were like really awesome for Jurassic. And uh, there was a bunch of other things, some Barbie stuff. There was toys. There were uh, blankets and Easter stuff. There was stuff all over the place. So go check out that merchandise hunt. Also, I did a live stream with Michael Corelli. You know Michael. He dresses up as Owen uh, around Universal Orlando and such. Um, he had the chance to go out to Jurassic World, the exhibition in Texas. And, uh, you know, he brought along some pictures to our live stream. And we, we showed those off. And we talked all about the experience of going to the exhibition, how it's changed over the years and stuff like that. I also did talk a little bit about um, my Funko experience, very slightly, uh, mostly just teasing what, what's to come. And then uh, we also talked a little bit about the live tour returning. So there was big news. It was a big, fun episode on the, on the, uh, the live stream last week. So please go check out that. That will also be in the show notes. Now this week, of course, we have another live stream coming up 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday. Uh, that will be a Beyond the Gates uh, episode, so please keep your eyes peeled for Beyond the Gates and whatever there's going to be, uh, whatever they're going to be releasing that day. And uh, we will be talking about it in the, you know, the unofficial after show, I guess, of, <laughs> of uh, Beyond the Gates. So uh, please check out our live stream Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. But enough of all that, let's go ahead and kick this episode off by diving into the final analysis episode of the Lost World Book Club. I wish Dr. Grant were here. He'd write the most amazing article about this. You need that guy? You got your nerd book. I appreciate that. It was kind of preachy. You had to share a few campfire stories with my uncle. No, did you read Malcolm's book? <sighs> Just the parts they didn't like. I read your book, and then my teacher told me about this other book by Manning Backer, and he... I read both of your books. I like the first one more. Well, it's two things that we have in common. Before we jump into the book club, I just want to take this opportunity to announce a competition that I'm going to be running. For all the details, head over to my Instagram and Twitter, at JurassicSiteV. It's for the opportunity to win a copy of the Folio Society edition of The Lost World, signed by Vector That Fox, the illustrator.
Hello, and welcome to the third and final episode of the Lost World Book Club. I wanted to thank everyone who's got involved in both the Jurassic Park and the Lost World Book Clubs here on the Jurassic Park podcast. I've had a really great time talking and listening to everything everyone has had to say about these incredible novels by Michael Crichton. Stay tuned as the book club will return in the future. But for now, well, what can I say? I'm joined by two outstanding guests. Tom Jurassic is a major part of the Jurassic Park community, as both a key creator on the Jurassic Park podcast and a main reviewer on the Jurassic Collectibles YouTube channel. He puts a great deal of work into the fantastic content he produces, including Jurassic World Evolution and Camp Cretaceous coverage. Joe Breeze, aka Vector That Fox, the very talented professional illustrator responsible for the outstanding drawings found in the latest editions of both Jurassic Park and now the Lost World novels by Folio Society. Let's go again. Let's do one, two, three, three, two, one again. Okay. Ready? Three, two, one. <laughs> How many people are in this chat? It's definitely Tom's style of rhythm. Is he clapping come a chameleon? Oh, I hope so. No, lovely stuff. Thank, thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us, Ben. I'm here to represent all of the Carno chameleons. Good. <laughs> I'm glad that we've got a representative. I wanted to kick things off by asking Joe, you first, and then Tom. Did you watch the movie first or read the novel first? So um, I uh, definitely watched the movie first. I was born in uh, 1992, so I watched the first film on TV. There was like a network premiere, and then I went to the second one in the cinema. Um, and I think by that point, my mum knew I was very okay with people being eaten by dinosaurs. So that was all fine, <laughs> even though I was quite young when it came out. Uh, yeah, yeah I, didn't, I didn't pick up the book until I think it was my second year of university. And um, for me, because it was, it was that far away from having seen all of the, the first three films that were out at the time, it kind of just felt like bonus content to me. It was very exciting. It was, it was just extra stuff that I hadn't had before. So I think had I read the book first and seen the film, I might have been annoyed. Usually that way around, it's quite <laughs> annoying, I think, because they change things and leave bits out. But for me, it's just extra stuff. So that was really good. Yeah, I so, guess you're always given a bit more with a with a book, aren't you? So doing it that way around, you you sort of, like you say, it's just it's just extra content. Yeah, it's just really exciting bonus stuff that I hadn't come across before. Yeah. And what about really you, fun. Tom? Well, to to build on what Joe was saying, I was born in 1999, so uh, what? I definitely <laughs> I definitely didn't see it in the cinema, um, and I wow. I watched it on. I want to say home video, possibly, or would it have been a? Um, I think it might have been a video because I don't think it was a DVD. Um, but anyway, I watched it at home right after Primeval was out on TV, um, and that was when I really got into Jurassic. I sort of saw Jurassic Park, then The Lost World, then Jurassic Park Three, um, and then kind of a couple of years later went into Jurassic World. So I I sort of had that late experience of getting into the franchise, really, and having all of the films in one go. Um, and then as I got more into it, I then went back and read the novels and wanted to see how different they were. And, and what did you, um, to both of you, like movie versus book? I know, Joe, you were just saying like it seemed like it was extras. 
but with the benefit of hindsight is there can you see many similarities between the two or do you do you still feel that they're so far apart oh a bit of both i think like there's obviously moments that we'll probably get into um in a bit where they're they're almost identical and i think you know whether it's in the the second film or you know a bit of the first second and third sort of mashed together it feels like they're definitely in the same universe with similar things happening but then there's those really different bits that it's, it's very interesting because obviously we've got more sort of Jurassic uh, content coming along. Like we've got the, the film coming up or we've got Count Cretaceous. So like they're, they're obviously still drawing from these extra bits from this book, I feel anyway. So yeah, yeah I think some bits are totally spot on identical and some bits will really deviate, but in a way that's quite powerful now, I think. Yeah. I- I think for me it's really interesting because I feel like the film has a much greater sense of scale. Um, so when you read the novel, it's kind of a little bit more of an intimate story of these two separate groups of characters who are on the island. Mm. Um, and then when you get to the film, obviously you have the inclusion of all of the in-gen hunters and everything who are then the mechanism that brings that story onto the um, mainland in San Diego. So I think it's interesting how that they sort of went for this much larger sense of scale um, and scope than really you get in the novel. The novel's definitely a lot more of a character story um, and the encounters you have with dinosaurs like the Carnotaurus sequence we'll talk about later um, feel a lot more sort of personal and tense and then the film replaces that with this sense of spectacle where it feels like it takes a lot of um, those moments from the first film like the Brachiosaurus reveal and tries to build on them with sequences like the game trail to still give you that real sense of scope and scale. Yeah, yeah that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, that is true. And speaking I still of, got it. Yeah, oh, he's, he's still. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of the characters, um, Tom, like you were just mentioning, yeah. I wondered in in this portion of the novel in particular, are, are there any characters that you enjoyed sort of reading their 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 character story, their arc throughout this bit of the book? Yeah, so there's a couple. I think um, it's it's really interesting seeing Arby in this, because um, obviously that adds a completely different perspective, and you kind of get that... Um, you almost get that dichotomy between the children that you get in the first um, novel and the first film as well, where you get Lex and Tim, um, and you sort of get that really similar parallel relationship where they're two sides of... And the same coin in the sense that they're both kids, but they're into very different things. And so that factors into the narrative. Um, so I think that's really cool. Um, I think the, the biggest standout for me, really, is the inclusion of the Biosyn characters here. So um, yeah. both Dodgson and King. Um, I think King is kind of really interesting because he's almost like this... Um, almost like an ethical counterweight to Dodgson, if you like. So Dodgson is this quite dark, deceitful, evil character. Um, And obviously, as we know, in the earlier portions of the book, he actually tries to kill Sarah, which is really one of those few examples of a human directly trying to kill another human in Jurassic. Mm. Um, And then you get King, who is kind of this counterweight. So when King dies, you almost see Dodgson go off the deep end and really embrace how dark he is. And then you sort of see him gradually become more desperate. And I thought that was really interesting as well, because in a sense, his character is used to sort of emphasise to the reader that you can be the darkest, most villainous person if you like. You can only be looking out for yourself. 
but eventually the dinosaurs are going to prevail over that as well and i think his character is used really successfully to communicate that yeah and also he has the confidence initially of having other people around him and he's able, yeah. they're almost his lackeys aren't they i suppose they can you know he can send them into the danger zones and although he's actively involved in it as well um, he's, he's got people around him to help him in those situations, but one by one they, they fall by the wayside. Yeah. yeah I think he's, he's definitely the sort of puppet master, isn't he, of that group? I, oh, I he's almost, very much in charge. I find it really interesting, actually, because thinking about his character more, I almost see some of the layers of Dodgson in the novel reflected in the way that Hoskins is portrayed in Jurassic World as well. All right. Um, which I think is quite interesting, where you have this character who sort of has this um sort of almost imposing stage presence initially and then by the end of the third act he's really stripped down to basics and ultimately meets his fate at the hands of um an animal due to one of the protagonists yeah and he's quite sort of um you know when he reaches out to blue there he he kind of feels like he's in control doesn't he and yeah then within you know within a second it, he's finds out he's not in the worst possible yeah. way, basically. It's really what interesting a... that you compare Dodgson to him because I always see Dodgson as Dita from the second film. Like Obviously, yeah. they go through sort of similar moments um, that we'll get to anyway, but I yeah. really combine those two in my head. I, I almost see the actor for Dita as Dodgson in the book. So to sort of combine it with Hoskins as well, that's really interesting because I feel like if you morph those two, you do get this mega baddie that we have yeah. in Dodgson. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, actually, isn't it, that you can pull a lot of the sort of bits of the baddies throughout. Even Mills in Fallen Kingdom, you know, he's he's very greedy. You know, he's all about yeah. the money. And I suppose if you yeah. you can almost throw them all in together and pull out different like traits that that could all come back to the Dodgson that we get in um, in the Lost World. Because although he's in the first novel, he has you know has quite a prominent part in the first novel. This time he's actually you know he's he's involved in interacting with the dinosaurs isn't he so there's a lot more there's a lot more going on for him so jumping into the chapters um in this last third there's quite a lot goes on really i mean i feel like we've had quite a lot of build up over the last over the first two thirds um you know setting up the characters setting up the world you know we're getting to find out about the different species on the on the island and the different behavioral traits and then i feel like it all goes wrong really and the first sort of one of the major note, major things that happen here that, that I have written down is um, how a king's death uh, when yeah. he you know he wakes wakes up in the jeep um, and he, he makes his way to the boat and finds himself in, in the long grass with the with the raptors. I wondered, uh, Joe, what you thought about this part of the book. I mean, the, the long grass is such a like iconic moment for every Jurassic fan I think I find it really exciting as a setting I think it's really important to this book in particular yeah because it, it's just so terrifying and like it is one of those things isn't it where like I'll be walking my dog and I'll see long grass and it just makes me go like oh <laughs> oh dear and like you kind of wonder like what could be hidden in there and it turns out like in this what's hidden is is basically these really quick giant land piranhas just ready to strike <laughs> at any moment and yeah, I just find it really, really exciting that moment, and because we've seen it in the film, you can really picture it in the book. Yeah. It's it's so terrifying, and it's nice that we get a bit more of that grass. I think here, rather than just that one scene, we get we get a yeah. sort of recurring visit to that, which yeah. is great. I mean, yeah, what a terrible way to go. Do you actually but shout to your that. dog, "Don't go into the long grass"? 
Well, he loves going in the long grass. Oh, no. and, then, and then you can just see the trails that he leaves, and then occasionally he jumps up. But yeah, slightly less terrifying, really. Yeah, a bit like that. Bit that. A bit like the leap in the movie, but with yeah. you know cute, cute eyes and little paws. Yeah, totally the opposite of when it actually happens. I have to say, when I very first watched the movie *The Lost World*, I think that was my. That was the scariest part of that film for me when I first watched it. When the you've got the camera panning over the field, and you can yeah. see the hunters, you know, you know, making their way through there, and you just you get those trails coming in, like coming in on the on the hunters. It just it whoa, you know. Yeah. It, how you awful. can't separate that scene, can you? It's it's totally set in your brain. Yeah. For the book. I read actually that there's a storyboard for that with, um, is it, R J. Um, the guy, the the guy that screams, "Don't go into the long grass." Uh, yeah. Roland Tembo's like best mate. He, yeah, he, he, oh, yeah. yeah, I'm sure because you hear. I think the scream that you hear when Malcolm arrives at the edge of the field is supposed to be RJ's scream, and I think they cut a scene actually because it was a bit too heavy for the movie, whereby he actually, you know, gets attacked by the raptor. So that would have been that would have stretched that whole sequence out a bit further. Yeah. But as it then is, obviously, it's great. in the film instead, he. Um... I can't remember when he does die, but you do you do see him die, don't you? Because then Roland's on his own, and that's why you get the I've spent too much time in the company of death line. Yeah, I think what they did is because they didn't want to literally show his death because I I think it was probably going to be too gory. The scream is to sort of to signify that you know he's it's yeah. it's all ended for him, and then I think is it um, Ludlow so yeah. you know sort of has that scene with uh, Roland, doesn't he? Where he's you know he's He's sorry, and he offers him the offers him the role at San Diego, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. So next up, we've got Dodgson. Um, Joe, you were just saying about how Dieter Stark sort of reminds you of Dodgson, and we've got a an almost a like for like sequence here with the comp- uh, compies. Yeah. I wonder what your thoughts oh, are about this bit. It's hard, isn't it? It's it's one of those things where, like, I mean, it. I find it really entertaining because he's so arrogant. And and they're so small, it seems really unfair that they're even a threat to him. Like, he just seems like they're so beneath him that it's ridiculous that this is happening. And so it's such a satisfying moment, and it's so slow and painful. And, yeah, I can't help but picture the, the film version. But, I mean, in this, it's just it's particularly satisfying, I think, for the reader. And it's sort of drawn out in that way that Crichton knows you're enjoying it, even though, like, the idea of it is really awful, like... I, a thousand tiny bites. It's <laughs> yeah. slowly draining his life away. Like it's, it's so brutal. It's so awful. Yeah. But kind of justified in that moment. And yeah, I can't help but picture the film sort of sequence for that. So it's so well sort of transferred. But what yeah. did you think of that bit, Tom? I think it's really cool that they take that moment and then transfer it to another character in the um, obviously in the film itself. Um, and I think it, it kind of it it's gonna sound really what's the word i can't think of the word it's gonna sound really bad of me saying this essentially but i think it kind of is quite satisfying as a reader that you see dodgson get this like drawn out death so it begins with this moment of him getting all these bites Mm. and then obviously he goes and finds a temporary moment of reprieve and it's kind of like toying with um, the reader's emotions essentially because you you know what this guy has done you want mm. him to get that fate and it kind of yeah. like dangles it in front of you a little bit and then takes it away and then brings yeah. it back and I think that's a good way of keeping people invested in the character and the character's fate 
Yeah, definitely. I think it's cool as well because when we when we've in the in the Jurassic Park, the first book, you know, we learn with Hammond how Hammond dies um, yeah. about the compies like having yeah. almost like a poison sort of thing, don't they? Where it makes you drowsy and and so on. So like when you're reading about that attack, you know that you can sort of get a better feeling of what's going on with him and, and uh, what he's up against with uh, with being attacked and pursued by these things. And like you say, Joe, they're little small, cute chicken sized things, aren't they? <laughs> they shouldn't really be the main threat. But yeah, they just really they're so small that they, they should not be a problem at all. And I think that's great for Dodgson because, you know, his ego is so big and that yeah. he just can't believe that these things are even making a, an impact on his life. Yeah, absolutely. So we leave Dodgson, um, he, he finds this bunker um, type shed building and sort of, you know, falls asleep or, or collapses in there. And then we're over to, we've got this whole sequence really, there's sort of turning and throwing, throwing from the uh, high hide back to the trailer. But in essence, yeah. it's the it's the trailer over the cliff scene. Um, I wondered what you guys thought about this whole bit from Thorne making his way over to the trailer and then the whole sequence from Ian and um, Sarah and Sarah really saving the day, I suppose. Um, she sort of takes control of the situation whilst uh, Ian falls apart. So I wonder what you guys thought of this <laughs> bit. <laughs> I mean, that sums it up, doesn't it? I think throughout this like final third of the book in particular, it's just a case of like how Thorne and Sarah are like getting stuff done. They're solving <laughs> all the problems constantly. And then like they're just surrounded by idiots who are lucky to be alive, really. <laughs> um, I find it really entertaining. Like you wouldn't want to be stuck with anyone else, would you? You'd just want Thorne and Sarah by your side. You know you're safe with them because they're just such good problem solvers and they're, they're so quick to respond to everything. Um, yeah, I think it's a really great point for them. It feels really like you're in the heart of the adventure at this point, aren't you? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And with it being, you know, in that trailer, um, they're, they're just like a sitting duck, really, aren't they? It, you know, and you've got Thorn heading out to, to get to them, which is a bit like Eddie in the movie. So there's some sort of some crossover there, but it's much more. Um, I think it's a bit more prolonged, the attack in the novel. What did you think of this bit, Tom? Um, so I actually have quite a few notes on little details in this bit that I thought were really interesting. Um, so firstly, I think it's really interesting seeing um, Sarah and Malcolm before everything happens um, discussing the predator and prey imbalance because mm. um, that hints a lot more at the fact that obviously this is a ecological preserve that we have created um, or man has created without fully understanding that actually... Um, the, the way that we perceive these animals isn't necessarily how they would have behaved naturally. Um, so I think there's that cool little sort of hint at us playing God um, and not fully understanding what these animals would have really behaved like. Um, obviously, yeah. at this point, you get the idea of the DX disease, um, mm -hmm. which is really interesting in itself because that then sets about a whole ethical dilemma um, which I think makes you really question what InGen has been doing. Because obviously if you know that they've been cloning animals with less developed immune systems deliberately, then it makes you question what kind of right do they have to play God? Um, and why do they think it's okay for them to clone an animal that they're essentially giving yeah. an Achilles heel so they can kill it if they want to? Um, and that again bakes into that real 
core fundamental ethical question about genetics and cloning that Jurassic is so so um a sort of just baked in really um and it really is something that runs through both novels and it sort of presents you with some really really um pertinent points to consider in this sequence particularly um i then like the idea that the dinosaurs have other senses that we can't imagine so enabling Mm. the rexes to track the baby for example um because again that boils back into the idea like i was saying with the prey slash predator imbalance it really builds this picture of us not understanding these animals um and that is again really what this franchise is about us experimenting with things that we don't understand and then being shocked then when because we don't understand them the consequences are something that we can't predict um so i think that does a really nice job of sort of connecting to that and really um tying it up in a nice bow that presents that core fundamental theme in a way that's easily digestible um i also like how descriptive the attack is having yeah. the cliff leading into a valley and not the water gives you a greater sense of danger which i thought was cool um i like that ian is incapacitated throughout the sequence um <laughs> continues it, it makes, to be <laughs> yeah it, it makes it feel a lot more tense right because in the in the um film you've got them both relatively okay Mm. um so they can sort of get themselves out of it and obviously eventually um ian does have to help sarah get back up but it's not quite to the same extent that she's helping ian in the sequence Mm. um and then lastly i thought that there were some really interesting little notes around um that the like other threats present in the lab module so i remember malcolm gets burnt by acid And I sort of pondered on that for a minute and I was like, that's a really cool way of subtly reminding us that we're so focused on the danger the dinosaurs pose, but actually there's all these other dangers that we're just taking for granted as well. Um, So I think it's, it's, to summarise, because I feel like I've just done a bit of an audio (laughs) essay. Do you know, this um, is impressive. (laughs) I think Crichton packs a lot of detail into this and this sequence really enables him to get to the crux of the theme of the franchise and sort of get you to think about those threats that science poses and about the danger that a lack of understanding brings with that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. That was a really comprehensive <laughs> answer to the question, so I have to I say. I will take my paycheck in the mail. <laughs> absolutely fantastic. <laughs> but you're absolutely right as well. I mean, it's... it's, uh, And also, it's, there's a, a bit where he's, they're trying to find the power switch to um, yeah. get some power back on and things like that. And it's the fact that they don't all know where that is um, that... Little things like that just show you that they're so focused on the dinosaurs and the adventure of it all that they're not that you know it's other things that can undo them. In fact, um, it's all these little things building up together, isn't it? It's going back to the sort of essence of the chaos theory that's been presented. And I go back to what you said, Tom. I really agree in terms of like not understanding the T Rexes and all these extra sort of abilities. I think in the film, the T Rexes feel quite predictable to me. Like, not in a good way at all. Obviously, like they're terrifying, but like the way they sort of just come over and they sort of sniff the trailer and knock it and peek through and whatever. But in the book, they feel a lot more alien and foreign and unpredictable. Like, even earlier on where they're sort of rubbing themselves on the jeep and things like that like yeah. they just they come across as like a lot less predictable in this and i think that's way more terrifying because yeah. like we we claim to have all this knowledge about you know the behavioral instincts of predators and things like that but actually it's like no what are they doing we we don't know what's going to happen here at all but it can't be good 
Yeah, because yeah. Sarah makes comments along those lines, doesn't she? Where she's almost trying to work it out as as they go. You know that she's trying to understand their behaviours. Um, you know, whilst they're attacking the trailer and, and the different things that they're doing, she she's sort of terrified but interested at the same time, isn't she? Yeah, there's yeah. a real morbid fascination to it. I feel I like think... pacing wise as well. It, this is sort of a a real uh, you know king king dies to, in the long grass to the raptors then this happens and then we're going to move in a minute from the trailer to the high hide and i feel yeah. like it's it's it really sort of quite ramps up the the action i suppose um yeah. in this bit of the book doesn't he it's it's interesting because it parallels the third iteration at jurassic park where you get to that point where chaos is inevitable. Yeah. So all of these sudden variables snap into place. And I think he does that really well. Because obviously, um, I can't remember off the top of my head if you get all of the chaos um, interludes in this one as well. Um, but obviously in that first novel, you get it divided into those three sections by those little interludes. So it almost feels like you're getting those ramping up again here in the background and it kind of makes it almost more rewarding if you've read the first novel because you can kind of see the way that things are sort of unfolding and in a way it's showing how history repeats itself and the events on um sauna are taking place in the exact same way that they did on nublar as well yeah yeah definitely i had a mad brain fart there I um I I didn't remember if it was actually Sauna in the novel or if it was Nublar again for a second, yeah. which shows you how long of a week it has been. <laughs> no, that is that's fair enough. I mean, it's again when you on Nublar, obviously we've got all the technology and the facilities they're brand new and they're up and running, um, and then the chaos happens and and that all falls apart. And in Sauna, you've got the old facilities and, and, and the remnants of what was left behind. Yeah. And they bring the technology, they bring the trailer, they bring the high hide. And even then, you know, the, this Thorn's like a field expert guy, you know, all of the equipment is supposed to be top of the range. There's even a little comment, um, like he takes the Lindstrat rifle, for example, Thorn, when he, when he heads out to the trailer. So that's a little nod to the movie. But it doesn't matter whether it's infrastructure or you've got specialists that deal with the, the wild and um, wild animals and wild environments. The the unpredictability of these dinosaurs, animals that we don't know and don't understand, is ultimately undoes them again, doesn't it? Life finds a way. Oh, that was... <laughs> you, I couldn't put it better myself, Tom. <laughs> so next Tom, did up, you we, come up with that? I, yeah, I think it's an original. It is, yeah. Co- copyright Tom Jurassic. <laughs> it's yours. <laughs> so next up, we head over to the high hide, um, and we we get the next bit here with the the candy wrapper. I think this is really well written. I love this uh, bit where the raptors are passing the high hide, um, and then they they sniff this the wrapper wrapper wrap. Can't get my words out. Wrapper and it just looks <laughs> up basically, and um, sadly, um, Eddie loses his life and Arby falls into this cage and uh, the raptors head off with him locked inside it. I wondered what your thoughts were on this part of the book. Who? Joe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, uh, the high hide, I think, is this is like the the pivotal setting, I think, in terms yeah. of ramping up the terror. Like this is where, you know, it turns to night 
there's like wet leaves there's the flare going off like everything is baked in like these long red shadows and it's just like full-on horror movie at this point and um i think i i already start getting stressed at this bit because again you, you going should back draw to... that joke you should draw that because <laughs> yeah. i'll tell you something that is the way Honestly. you described it i can just imagine uh. Oh no! Wait, actually, hold on a minute. You did. <laughs> Stop. That's, wait. What? That is one of my. That uh, is one of my absolute favourite um, drawings that you did for between these two uh, books. I absolutely love that, and the use of the red flare is uh, is fantastic. So, sorry, oh, I just wanted to you, cut in with that. I, I just thought I, it was the perfect opportunity to bring it up. I mean, that's not why I brought it up. It's just such a. It, it's that moment, isn't it? It's so visual and like. 100%. I had to draw it, but I really hated myself because it's such a difficult um, perspective to draw. It was really one of the hardest. But like, it, it's that moment. It's just, it's so visually uh, descriptive and yeah. yeah, just, just absolutely terrifying. And yeah, what a way to go. And I found the, the losing Eddie really uh, traumatic because... Same here. <laughs> I think I I really identify with him as a character. Like he goes through this sort of narrative in the book of like just being absolutely in awe of things when he gets there, and he's just like he's real like a Jurassic fan at the beginning, and it's such a brutal end. And the way they sort of tease it, he goes over once and he gets recovered, and then you're like, oh thank goodness, and then he goes over again. And you're like, no, he's just going back. Like what are you doing? <laughs> so like it's really shocking on that front. It's it's really back and forth and and really brutal. And, it surprised um, me. I didn't. I I just didn't. When I read it, I didn't imagine. I, I, he kind of initially in the early parts of the novel, he reads like one of the characters that's going to go all the way through the book, doesn't he? Yeah, a hundred percent. Like he he is the the sort of reader, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. And for that to happen, and I think that sort of comes right after you get this really sort of long monologue from Ian Markham as well. So like, yeah. you you get the like you're saying, you get the chocolate. Uh, rapper and I always really worry when the raptors go near those anyway because I again from having a dog like, I know chocolate is poisonous and I I kind of see the raptors as my pets at that point I'm like no no don't eat that that's not good for you like, I don't know why <laughs> just but, um, a human instead yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah that's so much better for you come on but yeah so it, it that bit stresses me out anyway and then you sort of have this this worrying moment where you think, oh God, have they seen them? Are they going to start jumping up at this high hide? And then mm. you go to Ian. And I think that's a really clever way to break up this section of the book because like, he's in this moment, Ian feels to me like he's very much the person you get stuck with at a party and he's going <laughs> on and on at you. And like, it's so frustrating and yeah. slow and he's talking so much and you're like, no, no, I have to get back to the high hide. What's, are they okay? What's happening? Yeah. So like, it really paces this bit out, which, you know, in, without that moment, I think as frustrating as he is and like know it all and like classic Ian Markham, like without that bit of this whole thing, third of the book is just one big nightmare so yeah. you, I think you kind of need that relief but at the same time it just really makes you keep reading I it's, think that's like, clever writing it, by Crichton isn't it 100% so yeah I find it really frustrating but in a very uh, positive way if that makes sense I, I think it's really smart and really needed in that moment 
Yeah. And then you get back to the high hide and it's a really pivotal moment for Levine as well because, you know, up until this point he's been just dismissing everyone's fears and sense of urgency and he's not bothered by the health and safety of it all and he's just sort of, you know, enjoying this wonderland of magical animals. And then this is sort of the moment where it sort of really clicks to him that it's quite dangerous. And he's, this is the moment where he goes into this state of shock and it's yeah. just hard to get him to do anything after that. So automatically, you know, he just becomes a dead weight and this whole situation <laughs> is just unbearable in yeah. the best way. Absolutely. I, I, my notes say um, I've got high hide. Uh, the raptor looks at Le- Levine and snarls. And then my next bit says Malcolm is high on morphine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's such a flip. I know. It's from one extreme to the other, isn't it? Two different you've, highs. Yeah. You've just gained a sense, sense of urgency. You've just started panicking, and then he just won't leave it. He won't stop talking. <laughs> and like, I do really enjoy his monologues. Anyway, there's a lot of insight to sort of Crichton's ideas about human behaviour, and you know how we're essentially a plague on the earth, a bit like the sort of Matrix monologue yeah. that you get as well from. Uh, Agent Smith. So I, I really enjoy those. I think there's a, a really nice existential nature to those monologues. But it's like, oh, the timing is awful. What a nuisance. Yeah, I think definitely you're right about that as well. The point you just made with Malcolm um, and and his little rants that he goes off on, it does feel like Crichton's kind of having his say through the through the story itself, doesn't it? Yeah, he's having a good moan about human beings. <laughs> how what stupid did, they are. What did you think of this bit, Tom? I um so I like the fact that it's ultimately the littering that puts Levine in real danger, because <laughs> um, that sh- that that kind of shows how um, don't drop litter. Yeah, yeah. There's like a really really meta reference there to just being a good person, um, but also it, it's this cool idea that actually at this point things are getting so chaotic that in moments of chaos, it's the small details that really matter. Yeah. Um, so obviously, earlier in the novel, you get this sense of, we're here, everything is vacuum-sealed, we're not going to leave a presence on this island, because that's important. And you get to the point where the characters begin to care less, they begin to panic more, they begin to become more human in their actions, and inherently, because of that, they make more mistakes, as we all do when we panic. Um, and so then you see how that, again, adds to the momentum of the novel and also adds to that impending sense of chaos. So I think it, it's like it's small details like that where because the reader already has the context of knowing how important that small detail is, it really helps to sort of heighten the sense of chaos that you're feeling. Mm. Um which I think is really cool. And I found a lot of Malcolm's stuff on interconnectivity and mass media consumption really interesting because um, I think a lot of that shows how much foresight Crichton had when he was writing this and um, that he really saw where the world was going. So if you look at some yeah. of the problems that we face today, a lot of that is to do with things like the advent of social media and yeah. mass media in and, and, and like certain communications in the press and all of that kind of stuff. So it's really interesting seeing the level of grounded understanding of society that Crichton was trying to explore through really quite, quite fantastical um, and quite science-heavy mediums. Definitely, um, yeah. And then lastly, I've just got the note that, again, like you were saying, um, Joe, Eddie's death is sudden and it's brutal. Um, And I think that that underpins this sense that nobody's safe. 
Um, yeah. And I think that that sort of the the suddenness and the brutality of it really amplifies the sort of difference between Sauna and Nublar. Because Nublar, you know, there's bunkers here and there. There's structures where people are kind of safe. If they get there, they can just wait it out. Um, but Sauna, you know that there's not any sort of structure for them to go and hide in. And it's just them and the wilderness. So when you get this character who suddenly meets his demise so quickly, it really amplifies that sense of vulnerability that I feel like is only exasperated by the fact that there's no fences on this island, there's no emergency bunker, there's no helipad, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and it really helps to just add to that momentum even further. So this this really is a case of um, something that Crichton does well in Jurassic Park, again being replicated here, which is that build-up and that sense of rapidly increasing stakes and rapidly increasing consequences. Yeah, I feel like it's a shock moment as well. It's it's Eddie to deliver the shock. You know, it's yeah, not it's not definitely. one of the bad guys that we're happy to lose or somebody that's on the edges of the story. It's he's very much in the story. I mean, Ed Regis when he dies in Jurassic Park, the novel, the first one, he's kind of like he's he's a good guy, um, but he's not. I don't know. His his death seems more timely in the story, whereas I think this was was definitely put in there to to shock us. And that leads us to Arby uh, scrambling into the, ca uh, the cage and the raptors heading off with it and the key going with the other raptor. Um, and we get this chase sequence with the electric bike. Um, makes me think with you saying, Tom, about how Crichton could sort of see the, the future or what was coming down the line. There's some techni technology kind of things that happen as yeah. well, like having electric bikes, electric cars. You know, they're everyday items for us now. Um, yeah. In the same way that like interactive CD-ROMs and touchscreens were in the first novel, <laughs> you know, like we all have a phone and a, an iPad and everything else that's all touchscreen now. So, I thought I, I think he's always, I mean, not just in his Jurassic Park novels, but all the books that I've ever read of Crichton's, he's very sort of he's always looking to the future and seeing where the science is going and the technology is going. Um, yeah. But I particularly enjoy. I think this chase sequence with uh, Kelly and Sarah on the bike is pro amongst my favourite parts of both between both the novels, actually. I really enjoy this. It's I kind of feel desperate for Kelly because she's in this situation, you know, she's far too young to be doing what she's doing, really. But, you know, the, the adrenaline of it and the fact that she looks up to Sarah, I think is quite interesting as well because I think it probably gives her the strength to, to um, you know, to get the job done. I wonder, Joe, what did you think of this bit? Yeah, I think this is actually one of my favourite bits of the book I yeah. I really didn't remember it when I'd you know initially read it up to reading it again for this like is it's such a sort of classic action sequence it's going so fast that it's, it's really exhausting to read and like the idea of trying to get a kid to shoot for the first time on the yeah. back of a motorbike for the first time while you're tracking a fast animal like off-road is just so stressful and like I have to remind myself that they're on an electric bike and there aren't those like revving motorbike sounds because they're, they're having a conversation through this. And I'm like, wait, what? How do they hear each other? But like, I I love the bit. It, it's so visual. I can't believe I didn't remember it. There's there's a bit where they're essentially like weaving around under the apatosaurs and it talks about the light that's happening because they're, they're such big, giant creatures and yeah. they're sort of ducking under them. And it's talking about the light sort of flickering, mm. like dark and light, dark and light. 
and it just really took me back to being a kid being in the in the car down to London we used to drive down a lot and so it was like a few hours in the dark on the motorway and I'd play on a Game Boy that wasn't backlit is one of the first ones and so I had to sort of wait for every What's moment where I was under the street light so yeah because like they wouldn't light up so like you had to light it so I'd have to like go under a street light see what was happening and then <laughs> sort of that flickering motion constantly yeah. and I don't know it's just re- yeah really visual for me like going under the apatosaurs and that flickering on and off it's just that extra sort of warning isn't it and just painting a really good picture of the lighting of the scene He's yeah. really good at speaking really visually about what's happening. And they're just ducking under them at top speed. They're kind of irrelevant to that moment. They're these just giant creatures. Oh, yeah, there's still other dinosaurs here. Yeah. It's crazy. And, like, yeah, I just had a, another sense of, like, panic while I was reading it. Even reading it, uh, you know, not for the first time. Like, oh, God, what if they can't get the key back? Like, will mm. Arby just stay in the cage for the rest? Like, he can't just <laughs> stay in there. What's going to happen? I was just busy trying to, like, problem solve him being stuck in the cage at the same time. So you kind of go through what probably Sarah is going through. Like, we have to do this. And um, one of my favourite moments is Sarah, actually, as well. So I'm going to carry on going. No, you carry but, um, on. The way that Sarah, like, lies to Kelly about how many bullets are left so that she does a better job. It's just so intuitive yeah. and so sneaky, but in, like, an amazing way. Um, I thought that was a really powerful moment between them. Yeah, really it's nice a nice considering detail. the relationship between them up to that point, like, for her to sort of know how to give her that extra push is really smart. Yeah. Absolutely. And like you say, with the, the thing about the key as well, it, he's, he, Crichton's giving us lots of problems all at the same time, isn't he? Um, oh, it's it, awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's so stressful and tiring at this point. It feels breathless, doesn't it? Yeah, I think I held my breath for most of reading this <laughs> yeah. section, to be honest. Yeah, I, I, I have to say I did as well. What did you think of this bit, Tom? It's almost as if it making you hold your breath is adding to that sense of pace and that rapidly mm. expanding chaos feeling, isn't it? I think um, the the pacing in this. So obviously, you sort of you get this situation where they're dealing with the raptors, and then RB getting like essentially you get this moment of reprieve where they've survived, and then suddenly RB's taken away, and it's like, well, there's another problem, mm, and it just yeah. feels like this sort of gets you in that cycle where there's problem after problem after problem, and you're not sure when the resolution's gonna occur. Um, and obviously, I think at this point earlier in the book if I remember correctly, or maybe I'm jumping ahead of myself, um, do we see the raptor nest before this point, or is this the first point where we see it? Uh, this is the first point we see it, because they've been trying to work out um, where the where where it is, basically. Um, but yeah. This is, yeah, this is this is how we actually get to it, in a, um, basically, because we, they pursue uh, Thorn and Levine, uh, is it? Yeah. They pursue RV in the cage, so yeah, that's how we end up there. Um, and then we've got okay. a whole sequence of them trying to rescue him and, and, you know, grab the cage onto the onto the jeep. I think that then in itself, it sort of adds to the tension even more because you get that description of all of the carcasses in the raptor nest. Mm. And at that point, you're kind of like, OK, there's this situation where this kid is trapped and we need to get him out. But actually, now the problem here is these are really, really deadly, even more deadly <laughs> than we realised. Yeah. And I think there's there is something like a decaying Apatosaurus corpse yeah. isn't there yeah and at yeah. that point you're kind of like okay they've taken down that if they can take down something that's that towering then actually the humans don't really stand much of a chance and it again adds to that tension 
Um, yeah. And it makes you feel, like you're saying, breathless and also really, really tense because you don't know if they're going to survive um, at this point. And it, it just get, gets like that sense of hopelessness, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's we get... Um we get a feeling of how the raptors behave much earlier in the novel where Sarah's in the game trail uh, early on when she wakes up on the island and they she, she pursues them. They're, they're pursuing a pack of dino, uh, other dinosaurs and she, she follows the raptors and sees how disorganised they are and how they're fighting and scratch, uh, scrapping amongst each other. Um, and we see that sort of play out in their actual nest. You know, it really does have a sense of foreboding danger for any animals that would walk into that nest or any other humans for example you know that they're not it's not a clean kill if they get hold of you they're absolute you know they're crazy aren't they basically to do with the the way in which they've been bred on the island i feel so bad for them in this book like i in the first book there's a real sense of community to the raptors like they're Mm. a real pack and you know they really look after each other and they have a bit of compassion for each other and in this book i kind of i want to explain to them like no this isn't how you behave you're supposed to look out for each other but they're they're really brutal to each other and i think this setting in the nest is like peak like this is the lost world it's absolutely wild yeah and and it's really nice because those those carcasses like you said uh, a sort of littered about and it's another yeah. classic Michael Crichton moment because he actually he sets up a question of like no why are these carcasses all here like they obviously yeah. didn't walk here and it, it sort of it gives you that question that you have to keep reading and later find out that that's where the sort of the river sort of sends all the dead ones yeah. but uh, the visual of that really reminds me of the Lion King animated film because there's, oh, yeah. there's that bit where you go into the hyenas uh, elephant graveyard sort of nest area and and I'd love that bit ever since I was really small. Like just the sense of scale of those giant rib cages and stuff really stood out to me. Yeah, it's interesting you saying that because you uh, you chose that to be your the front cover, didn't you, on the illustrations you did yeah. on the the Lost World novel? So it's... it's just the epitome of a lost world. I think in that moment, it's it's so dangerous and wild, even to the raptors who call it home. It's just yeah. it's just absolutely terrifying. Um, we're really good scenery, I think. Absolutely. When I'm imagining that place as well, it feels cold and misty. Yeah. I don't know. You know, you get this sort of unsettled feeling about it. Really, it's it's really well written. So they manage to they manage to grab the cage um, and head out of the um, out of the raptor nest. We've got this bit here with Sarah and Kelly, and they're chased back to the trailer where they jump inside and they manage to uh, rescue Ian, and then they head down to the worker village. Yeah. Now I like this because it, and just for a moment, you feel like they found some sort of safety uh, yeah. by heading down to the to work, and they're able to go into the general store. And you, I, I don't know, it's Crichton giving you just a little minute to think that perhaps they're, you know, they're, they're going to make it out, or at least they've got time to to regroup. And then we get the the scene with the the Carnotaurus. And we get yeah. Thorn, um, <laughs> a Thorn heading out for some uh, gasoline for the, for the to try and find some gasoline for the jeep, and um, and we get the the chameleon behaviour by the the kind of tourist. Would you say Tom? Was that what you would call it? Bear <laughs> uh, with me. Hold on. chameleon. They come and go. They're gonna eat you. <laughs> 
Oh wow, that's special. Did you did you write the second part of that <laughs> melody, or did you did you just come up with that on I the spot? I literally or? came up with that on the spot. I think that's going to be the that's going to be like. I don't t- think the word melody can be applied to that. <laughs> I definitely did not hold any of the notes in that song. Then oh, I, I think it was... it's recognizable enough. <laughs> <laughs> recognizable. I'll go with that. That's the best compliment I've ever had from my singer. <laughs> It's hard for me to imagine this scene now because all I, I've just got them both these these two Carnotaurus singing that song. <laughs> yeah, they're dressed up like yeah. Boy George, like the hat and the makeup. Yeah, yeah, they got Dancing the moonlight on, on a them. Riverboat. The jazzy <laughs> clothes. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think of this whole sequence? I mean, it's interesting because um, we learn. We, we now learn that it was, in fact, the uh, Carnotaurus that attacked Levine and Diego right back yeah. when they very first got on the island. Um, I thought it was really interesting from Crichton's point of view because it's an inter- completely new species of dinosaurs, dinosaur that he's introduced here all of a sudden. Uh, we don't get to see a Carnotaurus until Fallen Kingdom in the movie side of the, of the franchise, which is really interesting. Um, I wonder what you what you both thought of this entire sequence, and also what you thought of the Carnotaurus in Fallen Kingdom, uh, and whether or not you could imagine it in this. You know, if if the book was made into a movie, Joe, what did you think of this bit? Yeah, I I agree. Going back to you sort of introducing this next section, like it really does feel like you get a bit of respite when they get to the sort of the human bit. You kind of have them dealing with just before that, like going up the hill and sort of relying on the gun they have, thinking, oh, that's fine. And then the raptor nabs it off them. It's like, oh, well, it's OK, we've still got this vehicle. And then that starts to give out at the top of the hill as well. So you have them sort of constantly being let down by these things that they're so, like, yeah, that's right, naively vehicle, yeah. thinking that they're going to sort of protect them and look after them. Like, oh, don't worry, we've got all these machines that will fix us. Um, So it's a really good sort of moment of, like, humans thinking they're so powerful and great and then everything failing on them and just proving how pathetic and naive they are um so yeah it's, it does feel a bit better when they get to the village because it's like oh these are real structures they're gonna look after us we'll be all right um and just that moment where sarah jumps into the trailer just before that and puts her foot on the door it's so could have easily gone the other way that this yeah. whole next section does feel like a, a massive relief um and then, like you said, we get introduced to the Carnos uh, through Thorn sort of meddling around in the shed. And what I really <laughs> loved about this bit that I didn't didn't pick up on in the first time reading it is that the the description of how he sort of senses them being there. Mm. I think it says something along the lines of sounded like a horse exhaling. Yeah. And does. I love that bit because for me, it really gave a sense of that what height it was at immediately. Like if you just think of exhaling, it seems really sort of passive, but suddenly thinking about a horse breathing down on you is terrifying because they're really tall. Yeah. So it gives you that sense of scale before they're properly sort of revealed to you. And and yeah, like you said, snapping back to uh, Levine realizing that that was the Carno that attacked him right at the beginning and having that flashback moment that, you know, he went through of just, you know, that rewind going all the way back to the start. I don't think I've ever had a book do that to me in the same way. It's yeah. the first time reading that, like, oh no, yeah, of course that's what that was. And yeah, just that huge moment of a reveal was great. 
Uh, he's so annoying in this bit. I find him really irritating here. He's just Who slow and useless. Yeah, absolutely. He, it's really irritating because you probably know that's how you and most people would react in this situation. <laughs> but he just drags his feet so much. I just want to hit him. Yeah. Um, I think when, Tom like, would start singing in this particular situation. <laughs> yeah. Just to calm his, calm his nerves. Yeah, 100%, just cracking jokes. Um, yeah, so uh, I think them getting revealed is is amazing in this moment. And I think the the chameleon nature of them is, is utterly terrifying. And I'd love to have gone back to early 90s and read that when it came yeah. out. Because I think that just that would blow your mind. Yeah, so I'd, I understand that I think it would have been too messy to add it to the films when, when the Carno did come into the films. But for the book, I think it's really special. Yeah, I suppose actually that's a, a, a this part of the book really needs to be in the storyline of the book itself because the movie goes obviously we go back to the main line that we have a little uh, mainland sorry I beg your pardon but we have a little bit in the worker village but then they escape in the helicopters so there was really no way to sort of bring them into the storyline of the the movie was there? Yeah, yeah, it would have been too much, and I think it, it was nice here that they're a bit different as well because obviously we've just had such an intense scene with raptors mm. they're like actually having them be a bit different and a bit confusing just adds adds a new interesting moment whereas you don't call for that as much in the film because you've yeah. already had I so think many I, different things i like as well that that we learn a bit later on that the when the daylight comes obviously the carnotaurus they, they you know they go back into the jungle um they're yeah. trying to keep out of, out of the way of um out of the light because obviously it, it reacts with the their um, ability to to um, merge yeah. into the environment and that's when the raptors come back in so you kind of get this reprieve from the raptors and then all of a sudden they're you know they're back in the back in the game again what did you yeah, think this of this section... bit Tom sorry Joe go on sorry yeah I was just gonna say this section of the book answers so many questions from yeah, earlier yeah. that you kind of forget you had yeah it just like reveals so much information that's really sort of tied into the whole narrative up to this point yeah absolutely I have never been asked for an encore before, but here we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> I it's it's interesting to me actually because I was sat thinking through it, and the story structure here is very very similar to War of the Worlds. Right. Um, so in War of the Worlds, you get to this point just before the end of the novel, um, where you meet a character called the Artillery Man again, um, and he has been taking shelter. And you kind of have this moment of reprieve from the Martian invasion where everything's normal again for a second. And then slowly the characters begin to remember that everything isn't quite as safe as it is. Um, and from there you get this really quick succession of events which ultimately leads to the end of the novel. Um, and it's quite interesting how this parallels that a lot where you have this moment of reprieve where everything's normal in the building that they're taking shelter in. Um, and then suddenly Fawn has that encounter, they're reminded again that there's still even more they don't understand about these animals, um, and it very, very quickly goes downhill from there. Um, and is it this point, I've got a note here, I think it's at this point, where they explain the prions um, and the animals dying off naturally, which I thought was quite interesting because it kind of gives you an idea about how this is again, this whole... Um, a sort of really alien ecosystem to us and mm. actually the the way that it's being managed has been done so in such a way that it's so incompatible with anything that we understand the natural order to be 
um, which I think is really interesting because you essentially you leave this um, novel all, almost essentially walking away from an alien world by the end of it, which is quite cool. Yeah, and a world that's eventually going to um, die off, I suppose, because none a of them... A world that's going to be lost once again. Yeah, lost world forever. <laughs> but they never they don't make adulthood, do they? Or they do, but they don't make full full size. No. Um, you know, they, they, they're dying off, aren't they? So yeah. eventually, eventually they're all going to die um, one way or the other because the ecosystem can't support them and they can't support the amount of animals that are on the island either. So we get uh, the next bit we get here is Sarah heading out to find the explorer um, because they don't manage to retrieve the gasoline for the jeep, um, and we get the whole sequence with the with Dodgson. So I mean I, I think this is really well written and um, quite a panicky bit of the book for me as well when they're both underneath the car um, yeah. and <laughs> Sarah basically gets her revenge. So Joe, what did you think of this bit? Yeah, I mean, it's Sarah just problem-solving yet again, isn't it? Like, she's a, she's already been a total ninja getting up the tree and down to the car, and she's just, like, fixed everything. She's so practical. And then here's this guy trying to get off with the car she's fixed. And, like, it, I found it a really important moment for Sarah, because it's like you said, like, it's, it's her revenge, but you know she's not the sort of person to seek that. Like, she's so morally just all the way through the book and so yeah. supportive and caring of others. And this is a really difficult moment for her. And you know that, you know, there's no other way for her to save everyone else. Like, I, I know she's not thinking about herself. It's, it's everyone. She needs to get this car for them. Mm. So she's she's going to have to do it. And he's being so selfish. And I think he turns around and, and says really dismissively, oh, I thought I got rid of you already. So it solidifies that he's irredeemable at this point. He's still being really sarcastic. So and cocky, cruel. isn't he? Yeah. So you, you know that you're kind of rooting for her to murder this guy, um, <laughs> even though it's so against her nature and of what she <laughs> believes in and stands for. And you know she's going to really struggle with this decision later on. Like the PTSD is going to be massive. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it's all she can do in this moment. So she kind of has to make this decision. Um, yeah, she's really place. placed in a in a, in a position where it's one thing or the other, isn't it? There's no, there's there's no you know phone a friend involved in this bit, is there? Really, he's she's yeah. she's got to make a decision. And yeah, so for me, it kind of feels like they're they're mirrored in terms of of being quite polarized characters. Like he's he's really the worst, and she's just trying to help everybody survive. And you know, she'd probably save him as well if if there was an opportunity. But she's just been pushed over the edge, and and. There's nothing else she can do in this moment. So, yeah, really stressful. And also you've got... Uh, this is the bit, isn't it, where you've got all the pachycephalosaurus is just really being obstructive and annoying yeah. as well. <laughs> and it's like, you know, they've been through all these horrible carnivores that want to eat them. But, you know, even when you've got this relatively, you know, much smaller dinosaur that's a herbivore, you know, that doesn't mean that they like you. They're yeah. still being really annoying and, like, just... Yeah, just really frustrating all the way through. And feeds back to the unpredictability of the of the animals that we don't really know anything at all about. Yeah, hundred percent. They're just they they're kind of like sheep, aren't they? In this set, like they feel like sheep to me. They're just big, annoying sheep. Just ramming they're into just, each other. Yeah, and it just feels so annoying because it's like they've survived all these these killers, and yet here you are being equally annoying, even though you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be a threat, but you are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What did you think of this, of this bit, Tom? I think it's really interesting because this bit perfectly summarises how the whole novel 
um, is a big metaphor for how by doing unethical things, those things ultimately corrupt us as people. Um, and I think it's really interesting when you think about it, because the context is these people are on an island where we've been messing with nature and messing with science that we don't understand. Um, and as a result of that, you then get to this point where by the end of the novel, these characters with these specific traits are corrupted forever. Mm. So you have um, Malcolm, who traditionally in Jurassic Park... Um, is obviously seen as a bit of a womanizer. So he's talking about his <laughs> wives. Um, he's talking about all of these relationships. And then he's ultimately um, crippled as a result of the events on the island. So that changes his character from this really brash, flamboyant person to this person who is um, damaged very physically. And that then affects, obviously, the way that he is perceived by other people and the sort of perception that he wants them to have of him and hmm. um, you then have levine who after this point goes through the novel being very brave and brash and in control and at this point he's completely broken um and he's a complete show of the man that we meet at the start of the novel showing again how that's corrupted him um and then that ultimately really hits its um its plateau with sarah which is this character who we know is very, very pure and very well-intentioned, ultimately murdering somebody. And she is technically a murderer at this point because she has been pushed to her limits by the island. So it really shows how experimenting with this technology, when people, when the scientists who work for InGen in the novel have done that, they thought of it as messing with something that's very, very separate from humanity um, and very separate from having a consequence on the people involved in it. But actually, by the end of the novel, you see that those actions ultimately break the people who are most intrinsically involved in them. Yeah, yeah. That's really true. I've got a bit here that Lavina at this point goes from like worshipping the animals and kind of feeling in control yeah. of them and like they're his like, playthings to wanting them all to be destroyed like he yeah. he feels so betrayed by them all and says something literally along the lines of uh he just wants to shoot them all like they've yeah. all been pushed <laughs> over the edge at this point haven't they <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's gone through a complete art complete transformation of character really hasn't he from what we, the person we meet at the start of the novel yeah just burn it all down yeah 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 no it's it's a great it is a great sequence and it's a really interesting journey that sarah goes on like you say joe she would probably save dodgson if there was that option <laughs> to be yeah, honest with you she just doesn't let her pure isn't she yeah. in the way that she you know in the way that she behaves she's the absolute opposite to what he is so after this moment we get i feel like the the story sort of happens quite it's sort of the book sorry ends quite quickly from this point yeah. we've got a bit of a sequence here where sarah goes after the helicopter um, I think that adds a bit of tension to the book because you feel like that's their way to get off the island, but the helicopter's not there long enough and, and takes off. I'm um, so glad it, it does that because I feel like it would have been really unbelievable at that point. Like, they've already gone through so much to then just be able to hop on that helicopter just in time would have felt too cheesy, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's nice that that didn't happen. It's one last hurdle to overcome, but there's less terror involved. It's more like an escape room at this point. Yeah. Like, no one would have had energy for more terror, but this is a believable ending. I thought it was, 
it is satisfying that they didn't make the helicopter, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Interesting as well, because in the movie, of course, they do make the helicopter, and that is how they get out. So that's an interesting thing that uh, he decided to. He kind of offers that uh, beacon of hope, momentary, momentary beacon of hope, and then sort of takes it away. Um, and then we go back to the worker village where we've got, like you say, Joe, Levine's losing it, basically. <laughs> He's completely yeah. useless at this Which point. is understandable, but very yeah. annoying to yeah. read. And and then we've got I, I like the little um, right back early on in the in the book we've got the bit where Arby writes down the password to the network um, and puts it in his pocket I believe and that's yeah. Kelly retrieves that in order to get onto the system from the grocery store that they're camped out in I thought that was quite nice and it was a bit of a nod yeah. to the scene with um, Lex in the movie where she's going through the network to get the power back onto Jurassic Park. You've got Kelly going yeah. through the the network to try and find a way out, and it's then... really nice that she's good with technology. I think here because yeah. Crichton has this really good uh, respect for children. I think and that like yeah. yeah absolutely kids have always been like really at one with technology. It's so believable. Like I remember my mum getting her first digital camera and I took a photo of her trying to read the instructions because it just it was so automatic <laughs> for me and she was so baffled by how to turn it on and I think it's really nice that he sort of consistently gives kids that respect in his books yeah but yeah absolutely they are valuable they're really smart they pick up on things yeah and they um, play a pivotal role in the story as well don't they yeah and yeah. it's not out of nowhere either like obviously earlier in the book they, the kids stumble across the systems where they can spy on everyone and mm. the adults weren't a part of that at all so it really makes sense that they were the ones to sort of kick back into action at this point yeah and especially absolutely. when like the adults are probably so exhausted by now as well but it's yeah. really their time to come up and save everyone absolutely and I, but one of the things i really liked here as well is you know, the the kids are playing a, a pivotal role in the story and that their use of the technology and the computers. And then actually she comes up with a practical solution through the technology being plugged in somewhere through a network. And that's in fact how she finds the, the way to get out of the store. I thought that was cleverly done really because it, fit, it felt like to me, I really felt when I was reading that part, how are they going to get out of this? Because these rats yeah. are like ramming into the building. And I'd have given up. I'd just have found, like, I'd have gone through those freezers and found some edible food and I'd have just <laughs> given up with, like, an ice cream in my hand or something. See if there's any beers in the fridge or something <laughs> yeah, like 100%. that. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Let's just go scavenging. Crack open a cold one and wait for Roland Tembo to rescue us all. Yeah, absolutely, Yes, yeah. please. Comes <laughs> riding over the horizon on a Pachycephalosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> Singing, come, 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 Oh, as a, as a chopper flies over his head. Yeah, I'm I'm picturing it. This could this is good this is good stuff. So Dodgson Colin, if you're listening yeah. and you're doing another sequel, there's your inspiration, my friend. Absolutely, you heard it here first. If nothing else, can Clayton Ferretti do a YouTube mashup for you? Yeah. Tom, get onto that. <laughs> Make it happen. It's gotta be done. It's gotta be done. So Dodgson um meets his meets his demise basically. Interestingly with the little raptor with the broken leg. Um, from right back early on in the book there when they're stealing the eggs. I thought this was a nice little scene and a little bit like what we get in the in the SS Venture in the movie itself where Ludlow gets sort of nudged by the big Rex and the little baby raptor jumps on him. So do you think that was a fitting end for Dodgson, Joe? Oh, 100%. It's, it's like the, the T-Rexes and the raptors in this book had a bit of a Freaky Friday moment, didn't they? So the raptors are sort of ruthless, horrible killers 
in this book and the Rex is to me anyway seem like quite compassionate and lovable all the way through like it's yeah. a real family unit and they seem really gentle and nurturing obviously they're still deadly weapons but they they really feel like a really a nice calm animal in this to me and I yeah. think had the compies had their way with him initially that would have been such a sinister way to go um, but this kind of makes it feel like a bigger picture thing for me like this is more about a family looking after each other and it's it's not really about him anymore yeah. it's really enjoyable horror um, and the, <laughs> the idea that these little babies like waddle over to him and then ravage him yeah it's just it's really nice that he yeah he had this real sense of power over everything and he was trying to steal the eggs obviously so there's a nice sort of flip flip over there where like these eggs are now gonna sort of steal him it, yeah, I really like this bit. I think it's so satisfying and it's it's much calmer and gentler. Yeah. But yeah, really puts him down to the bottom of the the food chain. Absolutely. And it's kind of like where it all started to go wrong for him was in that nest. And his kind Definitely. of his whole arc, you know, his whole story goes all the way back to there. Tom, what did you think about his uh, th- this bit? I think it's really interesting because to kind of quote Simon Masrani from Jurassic World it reminds us of our place in the world and how small we are. And I think this is used Mm. as a metaphor to show that actually in the grand scheme of things, humans are nothing more than a plaything for the dinosaurs. Um, And they literally toy with him before he dies. Yeah. Um, And that really just gives you the context of, okay, these things are on a whole different level than we are. Um, And it sort of reinforces how terrifying they really are. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So that's him. He 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 uh, he never makes it off the island. I just wanted to jump back actually to a little um, point I wrote down, a note I wrote down, which was that it was Levine that realizes that the daylight means the Carnotaurus will leave their territory. And yeah. um, but going back to what you were saying earlier, Joe, with Levine, it's like he's that's he realizes just how much he hates them. That where their behavior, <laughs> their behaviors. Um, they're gonna, th- these things are going to happen whether the humans are on the island or not. You know, they're completely out of control. So I thought that was quite yeah. a nice little uh, moment, really, where he realises that, um, you know, one threat disappearing is just another threat on the horizon. So Yeah, like you said, it's all clockwork. It's all happening without them. Like, this, with the with the Dodgson sort of finale as well, like, yeah. all the humans are kind of pointless and they, they've recognised that towards the end. Like, yeah. They're not the centre of this story anymore. The dinosaurs yeah. are. Absolutely. Is, I'd say this is the point where it's finally become a lost world. Yeah. Because yeah. the humans stop really being impactful in the story at all. Yeah, um, they've lost control. Yeah, they're, they're just witnessing this world in action now. Yeah, I think that's interesting as well because we get we now get the, the you know, they managed to get out of the, the general store there. The raptors burst through and, and we realise that the humans have managed to escape. Um, they come up um, out of the out of the network of tunnels and they find the boathouse. I was so glad, so glad that I didn't end like the first book in a huge second raptor nest underground. Yes, that, yeah. that was really stressing me out when they went down there. Yeah. It sort of felt like it was starting, you know, in the, the first film where they're directing Ellie down to restart the power and she's following those pipes there. Is yeah. that another like familiar mirroring, like an homage to the first film? But yeah, thank goodness they just came out again at the other side. And I, I had I like flipped back to the map in the book. I was like, okay, yeah, that's kind of believable. They can they can make that and then meet up again. 
Yeah. Because it, it seems like maybe it's a bit lucky, the timing, because they both meet up. Yeah, that's right, game, isn't but... it? Sarah comes along in the car there. Yeah, but it's it's okay. It seems logical enough based on the map at that point, luckily. I feel like Crichton sort of almost sets that up, like you say, Joe, that they could be going into a nest or some sort of horrific set of circumstances whereby the raptors also get into the tunnels or something like that. Yeah. And he sort of... He he alludes to that being the case, but then, like you say, they manage to come out. Sarah comes over in the in the jeep, and actually they find the boat and leave the island. So it's it's actually quite a it's a relief in a way because it's the end of all of the all of the craziness, and they they actually manage to get off the island. And it's an interesting parallel to Jurassic Park, the first novel, because obviously as they leave the island, it's getting it's going to get bombed and completely destroyed. Whereas when they leave Sauna. Um, the animals are going to be left to it. You know, humans are actually going to effectively leave leave it as they found it. I wonder, what did you both think of this last bit where they do escape, they get onto the boat and, and leave the island? Starting with you, Joe. It's really sudden, isn't it? Um, yeah. It feels really like, right, that's it, over. But I really like that because it, <laughs> it, it really makes me think about the next step. Like, so I, it just made me go like, well, surely those kids can't just go back to school now. Like, they're, they're so changed by Yeah, this. on Monday surely, morning. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, they've all seen <laughs> such horrific things. Like, it just made me immediately try and think of how everyone's going to sort of respond when they get back to the mainland. Like, is Levine going to be like, back to how he was, but even more annoying? Because he knows that much more now. Like, is he just going to be intolerable um so yeah it, it just makes me think about what happens next but the fact that it's sort of open-ended and yeah. you you get your own interpretation of that i mean the kids are going to be awesome aren't they i right? imagine those adults they're going to be amazing they're so sort of skilled now and experienced oh yeah and they yeah. have really good role models and really bad ones too but i can imagine yeah, I kelly and sarah amazing. having a relationship after the after the end of this story to be honest they've with got you. to be best friends haven't they yeah Definitely. And also, Levine strikes me as, even though, because he's so cocky and all the, all the rest of it at the, at the start of the book, and then he turns into a complete car crash of a character later on, <laughs> I just wonder, once he's like off the island and back on the mainland and in a, in a position of complete safety, whether he would then sort of almost go revert back to being cocky about the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Is he going to be even worse or has this changed him? Yeah, yeah. does make you wonder. What, what did you think about this bit, Tom? I'm about to break both of your hearts. So it might have saved <laughs> them, but it doesn't matter if they all died on the journey back to the mainland. What? That's deep. <laughs> I, I mean, think about... Okay, so right, no, no, no. Let, 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 me, let me... On a serious note, though, it is interesting because they're, they're, they're essentially swapping one entire ecosystem and unpredictable force of nature for another right at the end of the novel. Because they're still going into the unknown, aren't they? So anything else could happen. <laughs> Ever the optimist. So you're suggesting <laughs> that there was actually a mosasaur in the in the waters off Sorda? And perhaps... I think there was a mosasaur. <laughs> they got attacked and Chill. they ended up on an island with these virtual biomes. Oh, no. Um, and then <laughs> they met this character called Cash. Um, and it all went a bit downhill. Is that, is that the time already? I, I... You can't believe 
<laughs> oh god, is that the lost chapter that that's going to come to light? You know that you've had, you've been sitting on for it all is, these yeah. years. Yeah, Ca- Conversation oh season not. four was actually written by Michael Creighton. <laughs> oh I, no, Ben, delete that. That is blasphemy. That nobody can hear me saying those words. Fancy saying that on the, on the book club. Strip the Jurassic <laughs> off your name. But I. And on a genuine note, I do think it's very interesting because it does it leaves you with this great sense of the unknown, yeah. and you don't yeah. know what is going to happen next. Yeah, and they are. I mean, you you think about it, the oceans are just as terrifying. The reason why Jurassic Park failed was because of the storm and the environment yeah. and the weather. Mm. So it, it, they they really are, even though they're leaving this strange world still right at the end of the novel at the mercy of nature yeah um, and it kind of it, it recontextualizes that whole thing doesn't it of this whole time we're messing with nature and we're messing with science but ultimately nature and science are the things that will always have dominion over us oh very good <laughs> got, got dominion in there as well didn't he well done unbelievable <laughs> I, actually I mean, you make a couple of good points because Earlier on, obviously, Sarah hits the when she gets pushed into the water. There, the waves are choppy, and it's you know there's it's yeah. said to be really rough seas. And also in Jurassic Park, the novel, um, we do end with them in, on the mainland, don't don't we? With being held by the Costa Rican government. Yeah. So we know they're we effectively know they are back to safety, whereas we don't necessarily with the with Sauna, I suppose it's up to the reader to decide whether or not they sail off into the sunset and everything's okay. Yeah. Or as um, you would have it, Tom, all <laughs> it all goes. It all goes completely wrong for them. <laughs> so. And they end up having an encounter with a saber-toothed tiger in a canyon. Yeah. Okay. Stop it. Oh, unbelievable. No, I'm not listening anymore. <laughs> so, so that's the. I mean, that wraps up the 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 novel as a whole. I, I wonder. Just a couple of questions. I wonder what's your favourite species of dinosaur that Crichton uh, includes in this Ooh. book. Joe, you kick us off with that. Um, I mean, obviously the Carnotaurs are a big favourite. I think partly because mm. they're such a mystery. Like it's kind of like Jaws, isn't it? Like they're just ghosts all the way through the book, and then they suddenly become this terrible thing. Um, yeah. So they're really exciting. Uh, I feel so sorry for the Raptors. I wish they were my favourite, but they just have such a horrible time. Um, and yeah, the T Rex family is just, I think, really sweet and adorable. I often tend to, I don't know if. I said it in the last um, book review, but I always tend to side with the dinosaurs. Anyway, so, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, yeah, for the sake of this novel, the Carnos are really exciting, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah, definitely. What about you, Tom? What do you think? Joe said it perfectly. Yeah? (laughs) Yeah, sorry. It's such a predictable answer, isn't it? There's no surprise. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It, it just the Carnos and the fact that they evolved the threat, and, again, it builds into this idea that they don't fully know how these animals are working. Yeah. And yeah. I love the idea that that eventually informed the Indominus Rex having the same ability in Jurassic World. Yes. I think yeah. it's really cool seeing that sort of iteration and knowing that a good idea is never a dead idea and it can always come back in a new fashion. Yeah. No, definitely. So with you mentioning the Indominus, actually, I was going to say, yeah. what do you think, um, what are your hopes and fears for Jurassic World Dominion? Okay. Um, so I, I think my biggest, my hope is a sense of closure. So I feel like we've had five really good films at this point. Um, I, I kind of, I would have almost enjoyed if Fallen Kingdom had been the last film and we just left it as dinosaurs are out in the wild now 
um, and then your imagination can kind of run free with that. But because we're not doing that, I really hope that we get a <laughs> sense of closure, an idea of what's been happening in the world post-Fallen Kingdom, um, and a reason for all of the main characters to come back together, you know? I, l- I love fan service, don't get me wrong, but if we're doing it to the scale we're doing it in Dominion, then I hope that it's a really strong story that feeds into the roots of the films in the past um, and comes to a strong conclusion. So that's what I'm hoping for. Um, what I'm fearful of is the marketing spoiling it all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fallen that's Kingdom fair. was marketing heavy, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, yeah. I, I, I mean, I look back and I'm like, maybe I was overly harsh on the marketing of Fallen Kingdom, but I did feel like going into that film... I knew a lot of the set pieces. Or I, I knew all of the set pieces that were going to be in the film. So I knew the Carnotaurus scene. I knew the Mosasaurus scene. Yeah. Um, I knew um, even bits of the Indoraptor fight. So that meant that when I was sat there watching it, there weren't really any moments where I was like, oh my God, that's awesome. And I think that's what you want from a cinema experience. So I just yeah. really hope that those moments aren't ruined ahead of time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Joe, what what are your hopes and fears for the upcoming movie? Yeah, I think Tom said a lot of good stuff there that I totally agree with. Um I yeah, I'm not I'm not as bothered about the fan service as well. Like I think ultimately do what you want with the characters, bring bring them back if you like. I think it'll be kind of a shame if we see too much about their relationships now and like, you know, doting on that. I think What's more exciting is seeing all these new dinosaurs that we now know they're adding. Like, you know, if you'd asked me before the the next trailer, what I would have said is I'm really excited to see these dinosaurs in our environments. I think that's so exciting to sort of put them where we live and what we do and how we would cope with that. Uh, One of my favourite games as a kid was think about, like, you know, if dinosaurs came back, where would I hide? How would I survive? Like, I really think putting them in our world is, is perfect and I wouldn't have ended it any other way. So, yeah, that's what I'm really excited about, just seeing all those situations come forward. And, yeah. yeah, the trailer does a really good job teasing that. I didn't think I was that excited about it until those trailers came out. And I know the Olympic one's got a lot of hate as well. They were sort of <laughs> somewhat poorly lit and coloured and whatever. But, like, ultimately, I just want to see dinosaurs on everything. Like, I really like it. I want to go back to the early 90s where they were just on cups and yeah. T-shirts. You know, I've I love all the crap. You, go for I, it. Get ready for this. I want shows like Casualty to start having dinosaur casualties turning up. Wouldn't that be good? I got a Triceratops horn in my stomach. Please help. Please. That's what I want. Yeah, I want to embed them in society now. Like, how do they they cause extra problems? It's like EastEnders. They're walking down the street and then suddenly they get chased away by a Stegosaurus. Yeah, well, they sit on the park bench and a Compsignathus jumps up on their shoulder and jerps at the screen. Yeah, what's the Cockney rhyming slang for being attacked by dinosaurs? There needs to be some of that explored, doesn't there? Yeah, I just find that really exciting. Like, I love, I love going back to the first films and seeing dinosaurs in in the wild and you know in their sort yeah. of natural setting. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. And then when we had them, when we had them locked up in Fallen Kingdom, I was kind of less enthusiastic about that. It's I, for me that was much less exciting seeing them indoors. So seeing them outside again, but then, you know, running around human environments is, is really fun, I think. So on that so, yeah, point, actually, um, of the tra- of the trailer that we've, we've just seen, uh, I wonder which is your 
Ooh. with the dinosaur interaction stuff, uh, things that you were saying, sorry, Joe, what, what would you say is your favourite individual moment in that trailer? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Uh, that's a really hard question. I think if they, if they fix the Parasaurolophus, I, yeah. I was enjoying that, was that bit a lot. Um, I really, I'm intrigued to see what they do with the Pyroraptors. Mm. Um, the, it's the Atrociraptor chasing him on the bike, isn't it? But that's sort yeah. of in that uh, so, warmer yeah. climate. I'm a bit less excited about that. I don't know. If it, it feels like you could have done that with a raptor. I don't know. You're catching me off yeah. guard here. I don't want to say things that no, 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 <laughs> I mean, I, but, for yeah. me, I'm going to kill the name, but I think it's the Quetzalcoatlus, the huge uh, flying... Smash the name. Quetzalcoatlus, yeah. Well, that's not that, a dinosaur, is it? is it? That's a flying reptile. Let's... But still very exciting. Oh, yeah. Getting technical. <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. But I do think that I think of of all the bits in the trailer there, I think that's probably my my favourite. Yeah, that's that scale is going to be amazing, isn't it? Oh, I was at um, a zoo recently and looking at giraffes, and I was just thinking, now imagine if that had a beak. Yeah. Like, because that's essentially the scale, isn't it? Imagine oh, yeah. if a giraffe had a beak and wings. That'd be. <laughs> Utterly ridiculous. Yeah, it would be crazy. What about you, Tom? What, what, one bit? What, which, which would you say you, you really enjoyed watching? The Allosaurus and the Carnotaurus squaring off in the square in Malta. Right. Okay. Yeah. That just seeing that I I don't know if either of you have seen my trailer reaction video, but I literally lost my <laughs> when that moment happened. That was so cool. I it's the idea of like that that. So there is some merchandise that gives some extra context for that, and I won't spoil that. But it's the idea that that kind of thing could have just been happening, like, in the world. And it's just yeah. a piece of set dressing in the background to another chase sequence. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's Also, apologies point. for the Lego that dropped then. I sit and fiddle with Lego while I'm podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, listen, I want to thank you both ever so much for giving up your time and joining me on the um the last episode of the lost world book club so um i just want to say before we disappear joe starting with yourself and then tom where can people find you i always forget you're going to do this it really catches (laughs) me by surprise i'm not used to it give us your address i would say as well actually joe um as people will know you did the illustrations for the folio society for the lost world and Jurassic park and you've uh, produce some lovely uh, smaller prints of all of the images that you've included in both the books. Um, so they're really worth checking out because it's a great companion to the novel, even if you've just got the normal novel itself. Um, it's definitely worth heading over and having a look at those. So, Joe, where Thank can you. people find you? <laughs> bit of free marketing there. I know, I can't help but say it. I'm such a fan I'm, of the, of the, the artwork. Artist, I really so. am. I'm sat here with them on the wall behind me. So what can I say? Yeah, there's big prints, and then, like you said, there's. Uh, I've done some postcard sets now because you were begging me for uh, things to stick on the back of your collector shelves. Yeah. So I've, I've gone and done that as well, so you can display all of those. Um, yeah, everything can be found under the name Vector That Fox, um, which will be spelled out on the podcast, I'm sure. Uh, so just read it from there. I'm on all social media that lets you put up pictures. Okay. Um, yeah, find me there. Fantastic. Come say hi. Tom, where can people find you? 
Uh, people can find me at Tom underscore Jurassic on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and I just want to quickly say thank you to everyone who has been interacting with this because it's been really cool seeing people getting excited and reading along. Um, and thank you, Ben, for doing such a great job with this because you've done a fantastic job with the Jurassic Park one. Um, it's really <laughs> great to have one on The Lost World as well. And it's exciting to have people diving back into the novels ahead of Dominion coming out later this year. Oh, absolutely. I agree with that. I yeah. seconded. Nice yeah. one, Ben. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. I consider myself <laughs> to be very lucky to be talking to both of you and, and all of the guests that we've had on, on both book clubs and also all of the contributions and audio messages that have been sent in. It's been fantastic, so thank you very much. Hi Ben and Brad and all the fellow Lost World book reviewers out there, still in the jungle. Chris here from the UK and the IndieCast podcast here. Wow, what a last third of the book it's turned out to be. As I echo others before who have said, the heat of the tropical island as turned up by Michael Crichton over the pages of this brilliant sequel novel is most definitely notched right up to 11 as the story reaches its exciting climax. If you can see, yeah. the numbers all go to... 11. Look, right across the board. Oh. 11, oh, 11, and most of 11. <laughs> now, similarly to last year, when we all got to the third and final part of the first Jurassic Park novel, I'm still a little way off the final page of The Lost World, but I am looking forward to finishing the book proper as spring shows its face here in the UK. But... I couldn't let the last book club review for this one go without some final thoughts from me. This is as good a place as any for base camp. That's first priority after we're finished. And I've talked about Malcolm and Harding quite a lot in my previous two Lost World reviews, but all of the others, the good, the bad and sometimes downright ugly, are great too. From King to Dodgson to Thorne and even Arby, who I kind of wish had made it into the movie version proper. There really are some truly rich characters across these pages from Crichton. But I have to say, so far, in this final third of the book, I'm really drawn to Eddie Carr still. Wait, wait, hold on! I'm coming! I'm coming! Now, this may be simply because I liked him in the movie as well, or just because, spoiler alert, his death is where I'm, I've got up to in my read of this third part of the book. But this scene and the gruesome differences between the two versions in particular still gives me chills whether coming to spine-tingling life right off the page or up on the big screen. The cover on my paperback Ballantine Books edition from 1995 has a T-Rex skeleton almost chomping down from the top of the book and truly sums up the sheer terror and tension I've often felt at times reading this second novel. So I'd just like to say a huge thanks, Ben, for running this second iteration of the Jurassic Park book club. 
and the review quote on my book cover of harrowing thrills, fast-paced and engaging, could almost sum up being along for the ride with all of you on this trail and trek through Michael Crichton's follow-up book, and I promise to finish the read very soon. Okay. Okay. Crichton seemed a true master of his craft by the time he got to this sequel, and as I near the completion of the read, it makes me really wish the great author had seen Jurassic Park 3 come out and been part of it as it went into production, <laughs> and um, we're not sure of that from according to Joe Johnson. But it wouldn't have been great if he'd been able to write, have written a third part of this trilogy. Don't go into the long grass! I thought I'd end with one final cliffhanger question, Ben. Now I've seen your Jurassic Jeeps builds and uh, proposals for for your next Jeep uh, on on your Site B social media, and I just wondered if you've ever got plans for a Lost World style Jeep from Isla Sauna, whether that would be smashed windows or uh, sort of jungle terrain version. But yeah, just wondered what, what your plans are for the future there. And until the next Jurassic Park book club, whichever book you choose, I'll be sure to catch a ride in that Jeep, and I'll be along for the track too. So this is Chris A from the UK and the IndieCast signing off. Hi guys, glad to finally share my thoughts on the Lost World novel. Uh, even though things didn't go as planned for me to submit to the previous parts, better late than ever, I guess. So, with my thoughts on this third part, um, it's very action-heavy and focuses on painting the familial and territorial nature of the T-Rexes, as well as showing the ferocity of the Velociraptors once again. I have a feeling that the raptor sequence in the novel loosely inspired the chase sequence in 2015's Jurassic World, and another interesting thing to note, Kelly has two heroic moments, one with the raptor sequence of shooting one down. I guess with the PG-13 nature of the movie, it seems more tolerable, I guess, for a movie, Kelly, uh, to use the gymnastic sequence rather than someone her age shooting down a raptor on a motorcycle. Me personally, I still don't have a problem with movie Kelly's big moment. Then when it came to the computer sequence in the novel, I like that Crichton went a sort of familiar route, but then led to a different trajectory with searching for the maintenance tunnels. And finally, Dodson's demise was a very interesting choice where not only Crichton conveyed the monstrous nature of a T-Rex, but also it behaving as a parent, feeding for its young. Overall, the revelation of what led to such an unbalanced ecosystem in Sorna was interesting to me, and I think finding that balance is what is at the core of Colin's continuation. Obviously, the big difference between this part in the book versus the film is the plot staying on the island instead of heading to the mainland, and the benefit of this is that we as the readers get to spend more time on Sorna and hearing the commentary of why Isla Sorna is the way it is. Overall, this has been a fun reread, and it's helped me as a fan see where certain commentaries and sequences inspire the later installments. And it's a solid sequel from Michael Crichton. Thanks. Hi guys, this is uh, Andreas, uh, aka JurassicCC. Uh, I thought I'd share my thoughts on the last part of the uh, Lost World novel for the book club. So yeah, I love I love this book, um, especially the, the last part. Uh, it's just non-stop action from 
from uh, from beginning to end of this last part. Uh, so many things happening <laughs> all the time. The cliff scene with the trailers and the the high hide. And yeah, very good part. Um, I actually re-listened to it uh, just because <laughs> to catch up with all the things that's, that were happening. So yeah, that's a great part. Um, and just Sarah in this book, uh, what a badass. Uh, especially compared to the movie, uh, where she, she's supposed to be this professional, but, uh, you know, hanging bloody clothes over her head in the tent. Ah, not so professional to me. <laughs> but uh, here, you know, doing uh, the motorcycle stunts. <laughs> And um, he seems to be very strong too, you know, pulling Thorn's hair, pulling him up <laughs> by his hair. Uh, yeah, that's cool. Um, what else? Yeah, Malcolm's Malcolm's uh, morphine speech. <laughs> it's like JP all over again, but uh, I love it. But uh, yeah, it feels like uh, Crichton's way to speak his mind through Malcolm and sort of but yeah I love it I can listen to it all day uh, so yeah that's that's about it for, for me uh, looking forward to the next next book <laughs> so yeah bye hi guys Brad here from the Jurassic Minutes podcast for the final installment of the Lost World novel review it, I love everything that happens in this final phase. We get the Carnotaurs, all the stuff in the worker village, uh, the RV attack. So much better than what we get in the film. Um, I wish they could have followed a little bit more for the film, but it's what we got, and it's it's fine. But, uh, yeah, that... Um, chasing after RV in the cage, um, the raptor nest, the creek, getting back to the worker village... Um, the different territories of the worker village. It's just, there's so much, so much to dive into in this third part. And even <laughs> the fact here we are five or six years after the, um, the abandonment, so-called abandonment of the island. And there's a rickety old boat in the boat shed that's seaworthy enough for him to escape on. I'm sort of, I don't know how much he's going to go into the Elliot Wu side of things with what we've seen. Um, of him being involved in the novel, it's probably a good thing he was removed because having someone, having an air quotes caretaker of the island trying to fix Wu's mistake, I hint that's Henry Wu's mistake, and um, trying to cure DX, it's, we didn't really need it. InGen had banned the island, they went bankrupt, and um, and the dinosaurs were just left there to do what they do. So, love it. Um Hopefully we can get some more stuff from these uh, from the novels in Dominion. It would be great to see. And uh, yeah, short but brief, short but brief, short but sweet. So I've been Brad from Jurassic Minutes podcast, and I'll catch you later. Hey, it's Jared, and back with my thoughts to share for the final part of the Lost World Book Club. There's so much that goes down in in just this part of the book with arguably the most intense action sequences in either novel with the Raptors that I really wish we had much more of in the films. And uh, 
their role in the deeper mysteries uh, of Sorna in this book that they are kind of central to solving. Plus the thrills and the suspense with the raptors, the carnotaurs, and the rexes are moments that you just uh, feel while you're reading through them. Still, so many questions regarding the ecosystem and just how many species and, and animals in total there are that could could be roaming so about Sorna in this novel. Uh, Lev- Levine was completely unaware of the Myasaurs until near the end of the book. And Ian and Sarah had a moment of pause about whether the Rex pair that they that uh, approached the trailers were the same pair from the nest or or not. And that just like leads to so many questions like, um, could there be multiple herds, packs or pairs of the species that they did encounter that are scattered across Sorna that they just never encountered? On top of what other species may, may be roaming that uh, they they just never saw. And uh, also the other big questions like, does DX actually spell the end of Injun's dinosaurs? Or could Sorna's ecosystem still respond in more unexpected ways again or or if and or when the local authorities discover Sapie's location will that still seal the uh, the dinosaurs fates or will life still somehow um, find a find a way even then another big thing that I feel is still really up in the air and unresolved has to do with the behavioral problems of the raptors themselves in this book um, Crichton, well, through Malcolm, dives into the raptors having their behavioral problems due to a complete lack or absence of guidance uh, by any elder raptors to teach them how to behave appropriately and raise their young or or stay their excessive and self-destructive aggress- um, aggressive dis- well, behaviors and disputes. If that were the case, then what about the raptors that were breeding on Nublar? They too lacked the same guidance from any elder raptors and still successfully cared for their wild born young for at least a few years and demonstrated real social structure in in their wild pack at the nest site. And I don't think you could even attribute that to like humans intervening to raise them because, well, <clears throat> we still saw how they reacted to the lab-bred uh, raptors, or even cannibalized each other too, in well, within the visitor center and their incubate. Well, specifically in the incubator room. Plus, we never, we didn't see the Sorna raptors demonstrate the same chromatophore abilities of the wild-born Nublar raptors either, leaving <clears throat> more questions like, uh, <clears throat> were these different uh, versions? Uh, that Wu had been breeding, like a version 3.1, with alternate genes spliced in, leading to um, slightly different and more aggressive behaviors that they hadn't anticipated in the newer stock? Were the DX prion infections a significant contributing factor to this as well? I still feel there's a lot of unanswered and unresolved uh, questions with the, <clears throat> with the raptor mysteries here. Like... To, like there, like there's definitely room that something much more could have been going on there with their behaviors. And well, moving on, <clears throat> there were so many more great character moments. I mean, with our main characters here, Dodson's end was very poetic, and I love how it also it's also a final 
hurrah for the T-Rexes, <clears throat> for the T-Rex family with how Dodson is uh, dispatched. And you got to appreciate Malcolm's drug-induced uh, revelations moments in this book as well. And uh, they're always uh, great moments f- of reflection for ourselves and society at large. And even a bit uh, prophetic too when, uh, for when it was written. I still love Thorne and Sarah. And how their uh, characters really shine in these particular chapters of the book. I love how they can actually take charge... And responsibility in all of these crises situations to save, protect, and and keep everyone alive. And and it's inspiring how they've both encouraged and inspired Kelly in her best moments in this part of the book too, which leads to her actually saving all of their lives from the raptors and finding the boathouse to escape. Sarah and Thorne especially have some of the best lessons for all of us to take to heart too. And how we could act, actually tackle situations and circumstances. And to really think about what is important and matters most in our in our own lives too. And some powerful uh, lessons right in those moments right there. I could go on and on, but I'll leave it here. And I just wanted to say a very big thank you to everyone um, with uh, Jurassic Park Podcast. And to everyone in the Jurassic Park Book Club for this amazing experience and allowing us to share our thoughts, opinions, and love for Michael Crichton's amazing and incredible Jurassic legacy. Thank you all very much, and talk to you later. Bye. Hello, Jurassic Park Book Club. It's Connor here with my thoughts on the third and final section for Michael Crichton's The Lost World. Um, So I think that this is the strongest um third of the book for sure um it's action-packed it really is um for me this book overall is a lot slower than jurassic park but this is where it really picks up um you know kicking off into um the raptor chase on the bike which i mean come on must have inspired uh, some of the imagery that that we see in Jurassic World and I guess more accurately in, in Jurassic World Dominion uh, with Owen being pursued by those atrocious raptors like we saw in the trailer. Um, I love the the idea of the, the key looped around of Lost Raptor's jaw like trapped there by its teeth. Um, it's just like a really unique kind of angle to take and one you can only do with a, with a Lost Raptor basically. Um, just being trapped around its mouth and it kind of being confused and not knowing what that is. Um, I think the stuff with the nest is really cool, um, like the hypothesizing that, that Malcolm did earlier of there not being any adult um, dinosaurs kind of coming to fruition here. Um, and then of course leading into the village, which the the worker village on, on Isosaurus has always been my favourite location in any Jurassic media. Like obviously I first saw it in the movie. Um, and it's just that that eeriness of, of uh, like how they show it in the movie when they walk into the village. It's it's so eerie, and they really got that from this part of the book with um, with them realizing the Velociraptors weren't entering the village and hearing them um, barking from quite far away. Um, yeah, it's it's just I just love how that that deserted kind of vibe, um, and then of course the the iconic Carnotaurus. I'm sure. <laughs> He'll be talking about this a lot in the episode. It's just one of the the best moments in any any Jurassic story. 
Um, I love Crichton, what he did with with the um, the, the the skin changing, the, the chameleon aspects of some of the dinosaurs, and this is just like the perfect way to do it. It's a perfect suspenseful suspenseful scene, <laughs> mouthful that needs to be in um, in Jurassic in, in in live action somewhere. It just it just needs to happen. We got a hint with it with the Indominus, but this just this this long drawn out scene of the realization. It's just so good. Um, Cutting back to Sarah and Dogson, um, definitely gets up his comeuppance uh, being slowly pushed out from underneath the jeep. I always found that it's, it's quite horrific, really. Like Sarah, I guess yeah, he tried to kill her um, earlier in a book, um, and he deserves it. But like, just her, her determination to just push him out from underneath is just like methodically. It's just oh, it's a it's a horrible world. Uh, would not like to go to. Issa sauna um and then um the groups escape from the um the store in the village from the velociraptors i just love the the use of the diagrams um and alongside arby's realization that um that this there must be a power unit and therefore like a, a duct um where this is coming from it's just such a cool use of his skills and it's 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 quite similar to how um how tim in the first novel um you know gets the part back online and and then of course lex in the movie um, yeah, I love that the kids are kind of like the the techies in, in these um, in these books because yeah, computers were were relatively new uh, back then. Um, and then yeah, Dogson's death just perfect. The way he should go, he's had steel legs. Gets killed by a bunch of baby rexes. Um, I do think though that Crichton had a. It seems like he had a bit of trouble and how to figure out to wrap this one up. Um, it just doesn't has a, have a strong ending like like Jurassic Park did. There's not as much finality to it, and that might be because he, you know he foresaw there being more movies and and wanted to keep it open ended. You know, hinting that the dinosaurs are gonna basically kill themselves off, but leaving it quite open. Um, so yeah, it's it's a shame there wasn't another book following this one. Um, because the ending does kind of leave you wanting a bit more, I feel, especially compared to, to Jurassic Park. Um, it just doesn't have the finality that um, that it should, especially you know, knowing that this is the, the last novel in the series. So, um, so yeah, I hope, you, I hope you all enjoy this book as much as I did. Hi, this is Andrew reaching out to discuss the fifth configuration through to the end of the novel. We did it. We got through the whole thing, and uh, let's talk about it. Uh, in this section, we got King's death, and, you know, I really felt for him. He was bullied by Dodgson the whole time, and unfortunately was killed by those raptors. Uh, I love the this section with the candy wrapper and how the, the raptor was eating it, and was kind of surprised at how good it was, and how that's going to play into later in the novel. We got the Rex attack scene from the trailers, which is probably my favorite part of the whole novel, even, even the movie as well. I loved how eerie it was portrayed in the book. Unlike the movie where the Jeep was like thrown over the cliff and just loud explosion, it was really subtle. It was just the motion sensor lights activating followed by a deep resonating thump. It was incredibly ominous and it set the mood. I also loved how this moment triggered panic in Ian. It was the smell that did it, the smell of before that he, he remembered. The whole sequence was so intense and expertly crafted. Crichton does an amazing job describing everything, which really helps us visualize what's happening. Just just incredible. I love, again, the 
the candy wrapper coming back into the story and then changes everything for the protagonists. You know, the Raptors would have passed right underneath the high hide if it wasn't for the candy wrapper. Something I picked up on this time, I didn't really get it the last few times I read this book, was Malcolm's hallucinations about complex creatures and evolution and how fascinating it was. He explains that at a certain age, a certain stage of evolution, adaptation was learned. He explained that animals raised in isolation without guidance or parenting were not the most functional. It's a direct quote from Jurassic World. Fantastic. Two animals could not care for their offspring because they had never seen it done before. This could explain in part the brutal nature of the raptor nest. You know, the older animals were just released into the wild and left to fend for themselves without any rules or structure, so only the meanest and nastiest survived. This theme comes up again and again, you know, with the Indominus Rex for Jurassic World, and it also played a huge part in why Dr. Wu needed Blue in Fallen Kingdom to pass on these behavioral traits to the Indoraptor to create a more normal creature, quote-unquote. Um, again, I have to say, I love Sarah Harding in this book. She flips the gender role of the big, strong action hero on its head. It's Sarah Harding, not Ian Malcolm, who rescues the three of them from the trailers. You know, she's just such a great role model. The section with the Carnotauruses were incredible. Probably my second favorite. Um, I love the tension, their, their camouflage ability. The tension that Michael Crichton creates is really fabulous. And, you know, you, Thorne, he hears something breathing, and then he realizes something's wrong. Just, I think he, he said it was like a horse. Just terrifying. In the late 90s, when I read this book before the movie was released, I was really disappointed when I saw the movie and this section wasn't in it. I think if we got camouflage and carnotauruses in the movie, it might have even edged out Jurassic Park as my favorite. I, I really enjoyed Dodgson's death. I mean, it was fitting that it was Sarah who, who kind of got revenge on Dodgson in the end. Um, the ending sequence of the raptors breaking down the walls as Kelly was working on the computer uh, was so much like the first novel. I love the misdirect, though. You know, you think it's going to be the technology that saves everything, but it's in the end, it's just plain old common sense. Um, again, as a common theme we've talked about over and over again is how the newer movies have pulled things from the books and I'm really interested to see what they're going to pull in Dominion from this novel. I mean, is it going to be uh, Dodgson's personality traits? Is he going to be this, you know, psychopath? Are we going to see the return of this prion-like illness, this disease? Is that going to make an appearance? Um, once, you know, once again, thanks again for letting me call in and discuss this incredible novel with everybody. And I, I look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Bye-bye. What's going on, Ben? It's me, Brad, uh, you know, host of the show. Um, I did want to put in my final thoughts here on the the, uh, the Lost World from the, what was this, the fifth configuration, I think, to the end. Um, I thought this, this, this portion of the book was just nonstop. It was really, really out of control, nonstop the entire time. Things were happening left and right. Um, now, granted, I was I was listening to this uh, the audiobook on a uh, a faster speed to try to make sure I got my thoughts in on this episode because all of a sudden I was like, oh yeah, there's a book club this week and I need to finish this book. Um, but I think there was just so much happening in this portion of the book, and you know, left and right, you're you're having dinosaur attacks and people dying and. Um, chases and just so many things were happening this entire sequence so really thought it was awesome very cool almost felt like too much at times but um, there was actually a lot of portions that were very very similar to the film which I thought was pretty cool and even 
honestly the first film. Um, so we, we kind of start off with the baby in the trailer. I mean, that stuff was very, very similar, just expanded upon. I feel like there was like so much about like what they're going to make the cast out of. Um, but uh, there was also a lot of really cool high hide moments, which I, I wish we got so much more from the high hide in the film. Um, you know, they, they had the chance to witness like raptors hunting in the distance and walking underneath them and attacking them because of that candy wrapper or whatever. And um, Eddie falling to his death. Oh my God. And then King, uh, Howard King dying off in the distance. Um, you know, the death, I think, by any death by, by Michael Crichton always feels so visceral and so fine, final, I guess. You know, it it, uh, it, it it's almost unlike, I think, any death that I re I've read ever read or, like, seen on film or whatever. It's just so, like, you're, you're in that person's experience and you're, you're right there with them feeling every attack and every bite and slash and, you know, witnessing that person fade in and out and then finally just fade off into, you know, into nothing. And it's, it's always so visceral and just, you know, emotional. So I, I really love what Crichton is able to do. And, and, um, you know, it's just always so brutal. Um, but, uh, you know, we also got the attack on the trailer, very, very similar, obviously differences in it, but, uh, you know, it still was very reminiscent. I think the entire time I'm just imagining, you know, the movie, um, there was a lot of really cool chase sequences, um, either the motorcycle or the Jeeps or the trucks or whatever, and Raptors uh, pursuing them and just stuff. It was just like everywhere. Like things. There was that one moment where they're trying to chase down the key, but also uh, that was like, uh, I think uh, Kelly and Sarah were chasing down the Raptor with the key. And then the others uh, in the truck, I think, were chasing down Arby in the cage. And like, Logistically, I didn't know how that was happening. Like, that didn't really make a lot of sense to me. But I was just going with it. I'm like, okay, I guess they're just, like, dragging this. I, I, I didn't really get, like, I, it didn't really make a lot of sense to me. But I was like, all right, let's just go with it. And especially seeing that, like, very similar looking kind of cage in Jurassic World Dominion. I'm like, oh, we're going to see something like that with Maisie. Um... You know, they brought up those, like, paralyzing grenade things, whatever they... Th those little, like, uh, canisters that would, like, paralyze the dinosaurs for, like, a few minutes. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, obviously, we got um, a little bit of, like, Jurassic World tie-in here. We had those Carnotaurus. Uh, there was two of them. It was, it was trying... Like, I feel like Jurassic World was, like, trying to do that with the Indominus, but went a very different route with the Indominus, um, with the camo and stuff like that. In this book, the uh, Carnos are very eerie and weird. You know, like they're, they, and I think they're described as like underwater creatures in a way that like only you know attack when it's when they're capable of it, and and when they're not, they just get out of there and they go hide or whatever. It's it was very interesting to to see that way, uh, to see that that the, the dinosaurs per, um, presented that way when we've seen the Indominus and we've seen that, you know, that uh, camo that transitions from, from like camoed colors or whatever colors to white. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I think the book handled it a lot cooler than the camo on the Indominus. 
um, unfortunately. But, um, you know, I feel like that would have been really cool if the Indominus was much more shy of a creature, but when provoked, uh, lashed out. I think that would be pretty interesting. But instead, it was mostly just a, a crazy monster. Um, and then, of course, we have uh, Dodgson. Uh, he's, he's in this a little bit, not not too much. He almost dies out like uh, uh, Dieter Stark in a way, but then, you know, gets himself the safety. Um, and then <laughs> I love that Sarah, uh, Sarah Harding is just like, nope, I'm going to kill you, basically. <laughs> and she she, kick, she kicks him out of uh, underneath that truck and just, like, lets him get eaten. Or he doesn't get eaten in that moment. He gets carried away, but, like, she's like, all right, it's a, it's either me or you, and it's going to be you. And I, I thought that was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, in a way, somewhat similar to what happens in the movie, kind of. I mean, like, I'm trying to remember the exact sequence in the film, but, like, you know, Ian and Sarah trap the Rex and stuff down there, but also Ludlow's in there, and it's like, are they responsible for the death of Ludlow? Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's kind of, it's a vague thing, but in this case, Sarah is definitely responsible because she she kicks him out of the, uh, from underneath that truck. But um, then he dies very similarly to uh, Ludlow, which was kind of cool. Um, but that leaves open this door of like, how does, how does Dodgson potentially die in Jurassic World Dominion? I would assume he does because, you know, any villain, quote unquote villain in, in the Jurassic series always faces their demise right i mean it would have been cool if mills carried on and did something but no he died as well and so how does dodgson go out in this case uh i i don't know i mean there's so many ways but uh not this way i don't think it would be the same way because it's already happened um and i think the ending of this this book feels oddly similar to jurassic park you know mostly the movie um because like I'm just I'm just thinking about, you know, that final sequence where they're in the visitor center and, you know, they're on the computer. Lex is on the computer trying to figure it out, trying to she doesn't really know it, but she she kind of knows this. And she's like figuring out the computer, figuring out how to lock things and do things. And that was very much Kelly in this. She's like trying to figure out the computer. Raptors are attacking uh, into the store and they're trying to find a way out. And then they eventually go through the tunnels like in the wall or whatever and um you know very similar to jurassic park they escape that same way from the uh control room and i just felt like there was a lot of mirroring there so uh you know obviously that was on Crichton's mind a lot um but uh and the last thing i think uh, that i wrote down here was the was a dx virus thing you know i i kind of i don't know in my, in my head i i thought it was a bigger deal than it ended up being much more i thought it was much more prevalent but i feel like the conversation surrounding it is more prevalent than the actual dx conversation in the book um i feel like fans and and people in the community talk about dx a lot you know we, we talk about like what it could do and how it could be used and what it meant and all that stuff and and we never it, it really didn't do a ton in this book there was like little subtext things about people wondering what's going on with these dinosaurs and where are they why are they dying or or whatever but i just kind of thought it would be a bigger deal instead of them just basically leaving the island and then it's like oh it's like the last one minute of this book we're gonna be like well yeah that's how they died 
and it was because of the the sheep bones or whatever it was. Um, and it, you know, it really wasn't much of anything. And uh, I I like that Levine was like, oh my god, I I got I got bit by a copy. I you know I I'm gonna I, I feel terrible right now. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make it. And then Sarah's like, I think it was Sarah was like, hey, chill, dude. It takes a week, all right? You ain't feeling nothing. Uh, so I thought that was pretty funny. Um, but, uh, you know, Malcolm sums it up and wonders if we're going to be the the cause of the next major extinction and refresh uh, uh, of, the, uh, of life, I guess, on Earth. So I wonder how that will play out if that if anything like that plays out in dominion that'll be cool to see um I, but i bet you a lot of that dialogue and stuff gets carried over into the film i feel like it would definitely be uh something that you would hear in the in the movie so um overall wonderful book um it took a while to get to the 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 third part of this book and then stuff just started happening everywhere i felt like the, the first two portions were a lot of setup and then this last portion just everything happened all at once. So, uh, great book. And thank you so much, Ben, for uh, for covering it for us here on the show. So, hopefully everybody else enjoyed it. So, thank you. Hello, it's Simon from Liverpool in the UK here with my thoughts on the end of the Lost World book. Um, I just want to start by saying I'm a teacher and I took this book into school to show it as my current or favourite book as part of World Book Day. Uh, the kids loved the fact that I was reading something that they found cool uh, I wouldn't read anything to it just in case I was in the wrong part or wrong section, but they loved it anyway. Uh, the first thing I want to say is, wow, that Tyrannosaurus trailer attack is still so, so, so good. The moment where you're ahead of the characters is great. You know that they're there, but they don't. And it's just a matter of time before that Tyrannosaurus comes out and they realise what trouble they're in. Then Sarah is, is just so cool how she takes charge. The moment where you think they've gone is well handled. And then just like that, the back... It's really scary in its own way. The next part I want to talk about is the high hide and the cage part. Is the part that I remember most from reading as a kid. Um, it's really quite terrifying. And Crichton has a way of piecing his books where the action flies by and you've read 20 pages without even realising. Um, you've got to think about poor Eddie. When we all know it's probably Levine who probably deserved the death that Eddie got. Especially having the indignity of your carcass being dragged around. But the part with Arby in the cage, is the, the, I remembered it slightly different uh, from when I was younger. I, that's the part that really stuck in my head uh, from the whole book. But I remembered it as being a lot longer. Uh, and the actual part of it being rolled away is... It, but it's probably because as a nine-year-old and reading it, it probably scared me beyond belief. I still love that section. And I loved it this time. And again, once again, Sarah shows again how amazing she is. And I think, as he is with a lot of things, Crichton was well ahead of his time. Uh, I don't like comparing to the movies as they belong on their own, but I really wish we got this, Sarah. And I might be saying this because when I was reading this part, I, it was on International Women's Day, and I just thought, wow, this is just, it just, he just seems so advanced. I don't think at this time, I don't remember many female protagonists being so strong as, as Sarah, especially in a, in a book or anything dominated by, by men. Um, and the Carnotaurus section is so cool. It's such a good idea them being communities that lie in wait. I think I prefer the Carnotaurus that we eventually get in Fallen Kingdom, but I think the idea of it was just really good and the flashlights and finding them did actually give me a little bit of a, ooh, wow section again, even though, because uh, I'd slightly forgotten about reading that from the past. 
Um, Dodgson's, Dodgson's end was just, and Sarah getting her revenge just underlined how strong a character she really is. Um, overall, it's still one of my favourite books, and I don't want to wish our Jurassic movies away, because they're all so wonderful, and I absolutely adore all of them. Yes, even Jurassic Park 3, uh, but I just try to imagine these two novels that we that we have being adapted to films. They'd have a high age rating, but my word, they'd be amazing. Uh, it'd be quite cool to see if they, uh, if they ever redid them. Uh, that if they went more along these lines. And uh, just to finish, I'm going to say it's true. Thorn is right. And I'm just going to read this little section from directly from the book, which is, um, it's real. Life is wonderful. It's a gift to be alive. See the sun and breathe the air. And there isn't anything else. And I think that's all we have to say on that. Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you for doing this again. Hopefully we'll have another book club with something else to listen to. Uh, to read together and listen to and i will be amazed i'll be really happy to join in so thank you and bye So, so much for listening to the 313th episode of the Jurassic Park podcast. Of course, a huge thank you goes out to Ben for bringing us the Lost World Book Club. Just in general, bringing us this entire experience. I am so, so happy Ben decided, you know, so long ago now to bring the the Jurassic Park Book Club to the show and then continuing that with the Lost World. I think it's been an extremely fun experience diving into these books and figuring out you know, what are the best parts? What are the worst parts? What are things that we could use in the future? I really, really dig these lo- these uh, these book club episodes, and The Lost World was just so much fun. It's I feel like it's been so long since I read that book, and to finally close the book on it uh, through another read-through, that, that felt good. So I was, I was glad to refresh my memory, get to the bottom of that book, and see, you know, what... There was a lot of things, I think, that you could use in the future, and hopefully in Jurassic World Dominion. But uh, again, thank you so much to Ben. And of course, keep an eye out on the horizon. Maybe we'll talk more Lost World. Maybe there'll be other stuff. I know there's some stuff in the works. So keep your eyes on the feed for more book club coming up in the in the future. And of course, I do want to thank uh, Vector That Fox and Tom Jurassic. Thank you so much, both of you, for being on this episode as well. It's always great to hear from, you know, enthusiasts of of the uh, the books. Certainly, somebody who who, you know, got so close to this and, and painted or uh, created art for, you know, the Folio Society editions, and they are just so beautiful. They are so awesome. Every time this book club comes out, I'm like, I got to have that copy right here to reference, to look at the pictures and the images and just see how awesome this this uh, book come to life is. And, uh, of course, Tom, uh, you know, I love hearing from you, dude. So thank you so much. Um, and every single one of you who contributed to your uh, with your thoughts on the Lost World novel, I really love this segment just because it gives everybody the chance to call in or write in or whatever the case is and just say, 
your thoughts. You know, I really, really love that. I, I love having this platform for everybody out there to be able to call in. So I appreciate each and every one of you who called in for the Lost World novel over the course of these past three uh, book club episodes. So thank you so much. Now, before we get out of here, I did want to read a quick review over on Apple Podcasts. So if you go ahead and write a review for the podcast, just search for the Jurassic Park podcast in Apple Podcasts and uh, leave us a five-star review. That would be awesome if you did that. You don't have to leave a five-star. Whatever you feel, whatever your heart's desire is for what you feel we are worth, hopefully that's five stars. If it's not, that's okay too. But go ahead and write something in there, and I will go ahead and read it on the show. So this is a, uh, a new one. It might be a repeat username. Uh, it says, oh, this is actually from Colton's World of Jurassic, and it says, heck yeah. Uh, this is a pretty uh, fairly recent review, and it says, love this pod. I think Zack and Gray will appear in Jurassic World 3. Interesting. All right. Uh, so Zack and Gray. I think that would be awesome. I think that would be really, really cool. You know, I, I've always had these ideas and thoughts that, like, it would be great to showcase um, these older characters that we all want to see in another Jurassic movie, but there's not really enough room to have them actually do a lot of stuff. So I feel like it would be great to have a Tim and Lex in the Lost World type cameo for a bunch of different characters. You know, Lex and Tim are, are just so, uh, so just barely in the Lost World film. You know, they're they're in that one sequence for you know a minute and a half, not maybe not even. And um, I would love to have that for characters like Zack and Gray. I think I think that would be perfect. You know, the uh, the Kirby family. Uh, Nick Vano and just people like that just seeing what everybody out there in the Jurassic universe is thinking about the world today I think that would be really really cool to see so heck yeah Colton's world of Jurassic let's get Zack and Gray in Jurassic World 3 let's make it happen so again if you want to leave a review go ahead to Apple Podcasts and uh, write a, a five star review and something in there and we will go ahead and read it on the show because you guys put in work to write those reviews, and I really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much to Colton and everybody else who uh, wrote a review. Um, now, that's it. That's all I got for you. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. As always, I want you to stay safe out there. Stay safe, you know, around the entire world. Hopefully, everybody in Ukraine, we're still praying for everybody out there. Um, and, of course, be kind to each and every person you come into contact with. As always, that is one of the most important things that we stress here on the show. Please be kind to everybody. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to go ahead and hand it off to myself for the outro. Thanks, everybody. Saddle off. Let's get this movable feast underway. Be sure to give us a follow over on Twitter, at Jurassic Park Pod, and myself, at Brad Jost. Also on Facebook and Instagram, at Jurassic Park Podcast. Don't forget to join the Jurassic Park Podcast group on Facebook. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, our website, or wherever else podcasts are found. So be sure to follow along. Also, don't miss our live streams, toy hunts, reviews, in-depth bonus content, gameplay, event and theme park coverage, and much more on our YouTube channel. If you haven't already, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We will read your reviews at the end of most episodes, so be sure to spare no expense. Find us on the web at JurassicParkPodcast.com, where you'll find today's episode's show notes, articles, contributor bios, and so much more. 
If you want to get a hold of us, you can fill out the contact form on our website or send emails to JurassicParkPod at gmail.com. We're always looking for new segments, contributors, mailbag submissions, or anybody who just wants to say hello. Feel free to call our voicemail line at any time to leave us a message. That number is 732-825-7763. Make sure to be kind to everybody and stay safe out there. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Five minutes. Drop what you're doing and leave now.